Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your stalwart senior editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to introduce for you a very special set of recordings, the World Tree Burns podcast. Yes, it is the permanent recording of the official Midgard livestream of the World Tree Burns game, hosted by GM Dan Dillon, friend of the Tome Show. And this recording is presented to you in conjunction with Cobalt Press, of course, and also with Encounter Roleplay. Check out our whole suite of D&D shows at thetomeshow.com, and remember that the Tome Show is sponsored by EasyRollerDice.com, purveyor of high-quality dice and tabletop gaming accessories. We hope you enjoy this and stay tuned for more of these episodes as they get released. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Roleplay. My name is Will. I'm a D&D sex icon. I'm back here today with the first episode of the official Midgard livestream, The World's Tree Burns. Uh, welcome everybody, great to see so many people here. Um, let's not waste any time, and let's go around the cast and crew, and let's figure out who we are, and who we're going to be playing today. And let's start with our uh, esteemed Dungeon Master tonight, Dan Dillon. Dan, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm really excited to be here. So, uh, as you said, I'm going to be the Dungeon Master, and so I'm going to be playing everything and everyone that is not you guys. Um, my condolences, and good luck. <laughs> Thank you so much. We also have with us Tool School. Tool School, how you doing, my friend? I am just excited as heck to be here. Cannot wait to play in Midgard. This is one of my favorite uh, settings. I've used a lot of their stuff from Cobalt Press in my campaigns, and uh, I am playing uh, Glaz, who is our uh, Tolkien wizard, uh, uh, Geomancer, once we get a little further along. So we shall see how this goes for us. Great stuff. Thank you, Tool School. We also have Laurelani and Buck of us tonight. Laura, how you doing? Good. I uh, had a lot of fun on Long March just now. It's been impossible to contain the hype for this. Uh, I'm really excited to be bringing to life Kari, the Shadow Fae of the Cat Domain. And this is my first time uh, inside of Midgard, but I've already found it a really lore-rich place, and I'm excited to dive on in. Great stuff. Great stuff. And we also have with us McLoken. How you doing, my friend? That's me. Hi everyone, I'm McLoken. Uh, I'm super excited about today because uh, all these people are fabulous. Thank you for having me on this show. And it's my birthday, so best way to celebrate my birthday, playing fucking D&D. Play some D&D. Happy birthday, man. Happy, Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Great stuff. And last but not least, we have our very own Encounter Josh with us tonight. How you doing, my friend? I am good. I am hyped. We have all been chatting and causing uh, an absolute shitstorm about this and just going on and on. Discord servers have been created, like the hype is real. So I am looking forward to uh, shrugging into the well-worn boots of uh, Kane, who is a Dampier Ranger who is sort of lost uh, in the world as is and is looking to uh, maybe, maybe find a party worth traveling with again. Great stuff. Uh, as for my own part, I will be playing Riodan, uh, similarly a Dampir, but he is a cleric of the Hunger Domain, and uh, he's going to be casting a lot of fun blood magic today. He's a little younger than Kane, uh, a little bit more exuberant in his newfound powers, uh, so it's going to be a fun dynamic with this party. Uh, before we get started, I'll remind you guys that we are sponsored by Cobalt Press. That's why we're running the show here. That's why we're all here, having such a great time. Uh, we strongly recommend you go check out Cobalt Press in the Midgard, saying we're all these books. Look at all of the beautiful D&D 5e books, the world book, the hero's handbook that we're using today. Uh, it's, it's some great stuff. Uh, the players have been 
devouring this content over the past couple of weeks since we've been setting up this show. Uh, and on display are a lot of the classes and backgrounds and races that come with the Hero's Handbook. Uh, so you'll be getting a full display of the materials that you'll be able to find there. You can go to Cobalt Press, uh, their website, in order to check out that stuff. Uh, of course, we're also sponsored by Fantasy Grounds, and we'll be using the Midgard official material within Fantasy Grounds as well, which are our virtual tabletop of choice, so all of the dice rolls, all the maps and tokens and images will be using Fantasy Grounds. Uh, and of course, you can check out Wayland Games for all of your miniature needs as well. Um, you guys can interact with today's show. That's the fun thing about Encounter Roleplay. You guys can interact with our story, engage, and have fun alongside us. Uh, if you haven't yet followed the show, make sure you do, because when we hit our next follower goal, you guys are going to get a twist of fate in what we call viewer decisions, and you guys can interact with the story. Dan, our dungeon master, will ask you a question. You guys will provide answers, and then through democracy, we vote on them, and then whatever you guys vote on has to happen in our game. And don't forget that you can, in fact, donate to affect the game as well. Uh, give players nat 1s, nat 20s, wild magic surges and worse. And as per request of chat, I will stop talking now and we'll start playing some Dungeons and Dragons. So I'll hand over to our illustrious Dungeon Master Dan to take us into the World Tree Burns. Fantastic. Alright, so let's just jump right into it then, shall we? Welcome to the world of Midgard. It's a world of dark fantasy and deep magic, where the gods meddle in the affairs of mortals, uh, hidden behind masks to protect their secrets and to keep their enemies and sometimes even their worshippers guessing. Uh, it's a world slipping ever closer into darkness. Ancient horrors stir as they sleepwalk through the western wastes. Ley lines pulse and surge with erratic flows of power and uh, long thought defeated evil stirs and moves in the shadows. At the heart of central Midgard is the Crossroads region, and there in the center of that is the free city of Zobek. Liberated from its uh, oppressive rule about a hundred years prior, it is a cosmopolitan place where humans and dwarves rub elbows with kobolds, once lowly slaves, now freed peoples, though they live, work, and, uh, and sometimes struggle against the odds, even here. Uh, they even uh, move and live alongside the Gearforged, the enigmatic uh, beings of clockwork and arcane energy fused together. Uh, they are constructed bodies that house the souls of once living creatures. And so the crossroads comes to a nexus point in the free city of Zobek. And uh, there are wide cobbled avenues and two rivers converge uh, bringing trade and news from all over Midgard. And as we, we look over the districts, the temple districts, the, the market ward, we dive into the streets themselves and then below them into the long abandoned tunnels, which were once a mixture of uh, the basements of dwellings, uh, utility tunnels, even cobalt mines that are now long abandoned since their enslavement ended. These are known as the cartways. If you wish to lose yourself, if you wish to find someone that doesn't want to be found, the cartways is probably your best bet. Smugglers, knaves, brigands of all sorts call it home and use it as their stock and trade in getting in and out of mid in, uh, Zobek in places they shouldn't be. And there we find ourselves, our heroes, working, adventuring together for some time now. They have been hired to locate lost articles, hidden, taken somewhere and they have tracked them here to the to the cartways. You find yourselves having uh, defeated 
a pack of brigands, uh, lowly cut purses hired from the local gangs, probably uh, just uh, just muscle picked up for uh, for some rude coin by whatever enemy it is you now pursue. You've uh, you've left them bleeding and battered behind you in the dark tunnels, and you have found an iron door, ancient, rusted, nearly falling off of its hinges. And uh, your, your tracker's skills have followed your quarry and their trails through the tunnels to this point. You know that it lies beyond. So an iron door stands before you. So, for my own sanity, I'm going to need some character description. So I've got the artwork, sure, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah. Um, but, um, so I'll, I'll go first. So uh, Riordan, would, he would look to be um, about... Uh, 20, 22 years old, quite a young, uh, fresh-faced looking uh, boy. Um, he wears the uh, finery of a, a noble, of a, uh, a courtier, and um, the only visible weaponry on him would be a, a small dagger which is clasped on his side. Uh, his hair is actually worn backwards, um, and uh, he is probably smiling. He likes to smile, um, and... Uh, he has something of an enigmatic draw towards him in a darkly charismatic way. Um, and he is, at the moment, probably wondering which one of his party members, which one of his flock, as he would see them, uh, is going to go and open that door for him. Quick question there, Will. Uh, does I may have missed it. Does Ryoden have visible armor of any kind? Um, he uh, would be wearing a... Yeah, basic adventuring kit, um, and there's probably some, uh, you know, levers underneath uh, his person, um, but he doesn't wear any kind of, you know, heavy plate armor or anything which is really visible. Okay, so he's probably, he's light, lightly armored at this point, something easily concealed and easy to move in. That's right, yeah. Got it. All right. So, uh, Ryoden sort of casts his, uh, his, uh, what color are his eyes? Uh, his eyes are green. Uh, yeah, gre- greeny blue, yeah. All right, so he casts his bright gaze around the uh, the gloomy tunnel, and um, yeah, unless you guys brought light with you, it is actually pitch black, and you're all relying on your uh, natural proclivity to navigate and see in the dark. And he just sort of casts an expectant look over at uh, over at the rest of his flock. My green eyes would kind of come to meet him. Cat's eyes in the dark it has that kind of reflection to it, and. Kari would just kind of look back at him, usually being more one of the quiet members of the group. Uh, I'm going to go ahead with my character description. She has two small horns that are black where cat ears would protrude, and she is a shadow fae, so she is kind of like a cross between a tiefling and a dark elf, if you've never seen one. She has scintillating black and purple skin uh, with pearl blonde, purple hair. Uh, it's usually tied back with a dark purple bow and a thin dagger kind of hidden almost ornamentally within her hair. Uh, she has a slender nose and an oval-shaped face. She stands at five foot five, and she's about 115 pounds. She kind of sways when she's standing still, too, almost kind of like how a cat's tail would flick back and forth. Um, but she doesn't make any move towards the iron door. I'd say somewhat hovering uh, this sort of looming shadow uh, above uh, Kari is uh, Glaz, who is uh, a Trollkin. So he is almost uh, seven feet tall. Uh, he is actually a, um, he is a Stonehide Trollkin. So he is 
fairly heavily built, but it doesn't look like he necessarily works out. He just sort of has a naturally large uh, build to him in his musculature. Um, his skin is sort of darker in tone, uh, almost like weathered old leather. And on his shoulders, around his face, there are sort of these uh, rocky, almost plate-like protrusions. They're actually just hardened skin that are the colors of uh, carnelians, uh, sort of that orangey glowing color to them. His uh, He is only wearing, uh, he's wearing sort of a sleeveless uh, tunic and he has this big, large skin thrown over uh, one shoulder that's attached all the way down to his belt. It's almost like a cape. It's so long. And on it, you can see um, sort of a either silver and gold uh, tattooing that is on this large uh, hide that he wears over that is a map of Midgard. And you would see uh, different lines running through it that represent uh, some of the ley lines that he's been studying. He uh, wears sort of a kilt with sort of leggings underneath of it and large boots. He has a pair of wired ring glasses that he sort of takes off and uh, sort of cleans them off and looks and goes, so um, what is our next plan here? We uh, That was interesting back there, yes? And uh, now the door, I can, I can try, but it will not be quiet if you'd like me to give it a shot. And sort of looks to the other, his other companions. Uh, and I think at that point you would see like cloak, uh, down by like your knees, like with his arms crossed, like looking at the door and then looking up at, uh, uh, glass and be like, yeah, I don't think quiet to a strong suit right now. Uh, and then, uh, what you see, you, all you guys see is a, uh, a little gnomish man about, uh, three, four, um, with a red cloak on with a, a hood brought up and you see just a bunch of foliage like moss and like different things and then you see uh like there's like mushrooms and other things growing from it and all you see is like a mask and like with the dark vision you see like the outline of the mask and then you see like the two uh beams of light uh that you normally would see uh, looking at someone with dark vision just peering through uh and looks creepy as all hell but he's just like looking at all of you and you can tell he has kind of like a little of a jovial smile to you uh uh, and uh, it looks around at everyone to see if anyone's going to attempt to open the door or if he has to try it. Which brings us to last but far from least. Sat quietly, uh, sort of on his haunches, um, very carefully uh, with his blade, which is a uh, single saber. It's a, if you are familiar with blades, it's, a, it's based on a Chinese Tao sword which is balanced across his knees, and he's crouched low, uh, looking quite filthy um, and bedraggled. His hair is matted and dark. He is uh, wearing dark clothing that is stained, and his leather armor is beaten from hard use. Uh, across his back is a bow, and uh, he has uh, a small quiver of dark stained arrows um, hanging across his back. Uh, his companion uh, who he usually travels with was reluctant to come down into such a dark and uh, subterranean place so he finds himself slightly agitated and hasn't taken part in the conversation but he's also agitated by the delay and finally noticing how everyone is loitering and trying to decide who's going to open the door with a flick of his wrist and with uh, agility that beguiles his dampier nature he flicks up his blade into his hand and strides forward 
very quietly to test this door. All right, so you're just going to try and carefully check it, see if it's uh, if it's going to swing open at your touch or not? Indeed. Before he does that, can I have my familiar present? I forgot to include her in my description, and I don't want you to think that I didn't have her. No, that's fine. Uh, you could have you could have already conjured your familiar, and uh, she can either prowl up on you now, or you can summon her from the the pocket where you banish her to sometimes for safety. She can just kind of appear. Sure. Oh, I was just going to say, if, since you had said we'd already been in combat, uh, can I go ahead and mark off that I would have cast uh, Mage Armor? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, pretty standard practice, but just so that I'm, I'll go ahead and burn the spell slot and say that I cast it. Yep. Varus is a tiny little, uh, not quite full cat, not quite kitten, uh, and has the same kind of gleaming fell green eyes that Kari does. Uh, and this cat behaves a little strangely. Um, it, it's a black cat, you know, sleek black fur, except it isn't shiny. In fact, light seems to just sort of slide off of it like oil and water. And uh, as it slinks around her legs, you actually lose sight of the damn thing every now and then. It just it's almost like it blends into the cloying darkness around even in even in your dark vision. Uh, and so. Uh, Kane strides forward uh, on deceptively soft booted footfalls and uh, kind of nudges the door. Uh, Kane, it looks like it's probably going to open, but if you're not careful, it's going to be loud. The, the hinges are rusted. Uh, the door is heavy. Do, do, do be careful, darling. He gives you a cold look in response to your uh, familiar tone. Uh, and gestures for the rest of the party without uh, a word to uh, ready up. And he has his sword sort of angled uh, to uh, impale anything that would emerge uh, aggressively and will very carefully... Um, He's never careful. ...sneak open the door uh, as quietly as he can. All right, why don't you go ahead and make me a uh, dexterity stealth check? No, the first roll, the first roll. I'm so nervous. <laughs> uh, a dexterity <laughs> stealth check. Okay, uh, let me just check my sheet. Uh, and we're going to make this one with disadvantage because of the horrible age and rust of this iron door. You terrible! Per How could you do this to me? Yes. First roll. You're yes. making me roll a disadvantage. Okay, here we go. Yes. Curse my name. Oh, oh, that's an eight. Ooh. An eight. Mm, interesting. <laughs> All right. So uh, as he presses the door open, uh, there's just this. It's not super loud, but it just grates along your spine like a rusty blade on bone. This that echoes seeming amplified in these close stone hallways. But, you know, it could have been louder. At least he didn't kick it in. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the door opens and your, uh, your vision resolves the chamber beyond. Uh, it looks like, uh, it's difficult to tell what it was at one point. It was certainly, uh, used for something. There's, uh, old rotten bits of wood, uh, and rubble sort of scattered around the room. Uh, it's perhaps 30 foot square and has a taller ceiling than the 10 foot tunnels you've been in. It rises up to about 20 feet with a sort of vaulted stonework. Uh, and there are columns uh, every few feet stone columns stacked high supporting uh, the ceilings 
along each side of the room and you can see at the far side there's another open doorway it looks like once there was another iron door there but it has since just rusted away to to nothing uh do you want to go open that one molly too you're very good at opening these doors darling that's a joke come on slightly like his hackles rise ever so slightly uh and uh he's going to cautiously move in checking any hiding places in the room uh, paying absolutely no attention to the idiots that he is traveling with. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so is anyone's passive perception lower than 10? No. 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 No? All right. Then none of you are surprised as you move into the room in your formation as uh, figures begin to stir from behind the columns and behind the piles of rubble. The individuals emerging... Uh, are crouched low, and they are carrying uh, wickedly curved thin blades, and they're dressed in black robes with uh, tattered hems, and they have strange markings inked on their faces and uh, backs of their hands and their arms. Uh, Not tattoos, though. It just looks like uh, actually just smeared on with ink, and they've since begun to run with either sweat or rain or moisture from the tunnels. And with a great cry that echoes throughout the room, they attack. Roll initiative. Oof. Oh, 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 boy. (laughs) Here we go. Ah! It's a 16 for me. It's a 14 for Glaz. I got an 8. Okay, so uh, I'm so I, I think some of you have your characters programmed in, others didn't. Some some people just rolled dice. So I'm just gonna we're just gonna do this uh, sort of the old fashioned way until if we get this all programmed in. So we'll go uh, anybody over 20. Nope, 20 to 15. I got a 16. Uh huh. 16. Real Dan. Uh, 15 to 10. 14 for Glaz. 14 for Kari. And Glaz. And 14 for Glaz as well. All right, who would like to go first? Uh, I can, I'll let Kari go first. Very well. And this is a good time to mention that electricity begins to crackle visibly along my weapons during a combat as per one of our wild magic surges. Um, <laughs> oh, very nice. Interesting. Sorry, uh, let's see, 15 to 10, 10 to 5? I got an 8. You got an 8. All right. Eight. And where are we at there, Cloak? Uh, I'm at a wonderful eight. Eight as well. Who would like to go first, Kane or Cloak? Uh, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say Kane since he opened the door and went in first. Okay, yeah. I was going to say Kane because it looks like he has a higher dexterity than I do. And so that makes it makes more logical sense that he would, you know, be a little bit quicker to his step. All right. So while they didn't manage to surprise you, they do have uh, the drop on you by virtue of hearing you coming, thanks to that god-awful squealing door. So these, uh, these cultists surge out of the, uh, of the shadows. Four of them rush forward, and uh, we're going to strike at Kane with a scimitar. Okay. Uh, ooh, that is going to be a mighty 11. Uh, that does not hit. Yeah, you step aside and quickly parry his clumsy blow. We have a cultist slicing at Kari. Oof, with a a dirty 20, so he will hit you. Uh, He cuts in under your guard, slashing you for five points of damage. I do my best to not let out a cry of pain as I am cut open. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, All right, so we're going to have one on uh, 
Let's see. So one of the cultists lunges forward, and he uh, kind of feints to the left and then cuts back uh, Glaz, and you just sort of raise your arm, and with a ripple of blue force and the, the thickness of your knobby hide, you just take the blade full on the arm. Ktang! Do not hit me. Why are you hitting me? <laughs> and we'll have, uh, we'll have a 19 striking at Riodin with the, uh, the, the fourth Oh, part. that's awfully rude, yes. Yes, yeah, I believe it'll be a hit. Then uh, three points of slashing damage, though. Goodness gracious me, the impudence of it. All right. Uh, in the back, you can see the two, uh, two figures kind of holding back are dressed slightly better than these two. They're wearing black masks, uh, and uh, one of them holds up its hand and begins to intone in umbral, which I believe some of you understand. So as he chants, this, uh, this strange black energy pulses out over, uh, over their comrades. In fact, each of them will begin doing this. And Kari and Riodin... Uh, you both recognize this. They've cast the Bless spell on themselves and their allies. So they are all blessed now. Bless up. Just confirming there's four plus two or two plus two. Four cultists, two acolytes. Sorry, I misspoke. There. All right, uh, Riodin, your turn. Goodness gracious, the impudence of this whole situation is grating upon me. Uh, I am going to cast and inflict wounds upon the gentleman who has dared to lay his dirty finger upon me. Uh, and do so, sir. Make your I'm spell attack. Going to do just that, darling. Just give me a moment. Um, there we go. That's my dice. That'll be an eight to hit, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, I don't believe that will uh, that will succeed. Mm. Yes. Uh, so as you strike forward with your hand wreathed in this sort of greenish black energy, he uh, his eyes widen and he jumps back out of the way, foiling your spell. Uh, Kari, your turn. I see you, blessed creature. And I reach out to one of the ones that have blessed themselves, one of the two, I think you had said, and I cast True Strike on one of them. Okay, so, uh, all right, your uh, your vision sort of tunnels then toward that uh, figure in the back that was chanting in Umbral, and everything else kind of goes into grayscale, and he comes into sharp focus. Uh, Glass. Um, the one that came and, like, hit me and that I deflected his blow... Um, I'm going to use the uh, frostbite cantrip on him. So I uh, reach out and basically uh, grab his hand. It's actually a uh, it's a DC uh, constitution uh, saving throw uh, to see if I'm able to uh, inflict him with frostbite. All right. What's your save, DC, sir? Twelve. Uh, he will go ahead and fail that because of his weak constitution. Give me some damage. Uh, so that's 1d6. So... That would be four points of cold damage. All right. He howls in pain. In addition, he has a disadvantage on his next weapon attack roll before the end of his next Ooh, turn. Ooh, good to know. So he begins to uh, to tremor and shiver as a, a sudden blast of hypothermia begins to set in on him. And where you grabbed him on the arm, you can see that his skin is turned white in the, the pattern of your handprint. I told you, do not hit me. I do not like being hit by people, okay? Kane. Okay, um, Kane is going to retaliate against the guy who dared to try and strike him. Uh, yes, indeed. That. Oof. All right. Uh, so he will uh, give as good as he got the first time. As you come in and try to counter strike him, he uh, parries your blade and kind of locks it against the quillions of his sword. And you're, uh, you're uh, face to face, kind of clashing with your swords now. Uh, cloak. 
Uh, so, uh, the one that is in front of, uh, that Glaz just, uh, cast, uh, his spell on and that attacked him, uh, I imagine I'm the closest to him, so I'm gonna give him an attack, so I got a plus two to this. Wait, plus four. Uh, so here we go. No, more, yeah, more than plus two, yeah. Uh, 16? Oh, yeah. And you're attacking with, uh... Uh, this is my all of a sudden, yeah. So what what all everyone sees all of a sudden, uh, as soon as Glaz gives his little speech, you just see uh, cloak fly up, and all of a sudden he like from under his cloak, it's like already he like already had it like drawn, and he's like coming out, and he's like stabbing this guy in the gut because he's just like right in that perfect range. If he's like a medium creature, lunging straight at him, and he's like, why do they have masks? Master Mighting, and then uh, he's rolling a D eight <laughs> plus four. Uh, so that'd be a five damage. That is sufficient. Even your, uh, your most paltry strike is enough to, to finish him off in his wounded state. So you drive forward with your blade and you run it into his guts and he tries to scream, but he really can't. And he just sort of tremoring falls backward off of your sword. Okay. And I, I look viciously at him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, one of the other ones is going to look at you with a little bit of trepidation, uh, one of the two holding up in the back. He will come forward and attempt to strike at you. Mm, he is going to strike at you with a club. Ooh, he will He will hit you. All right. Don't even need to check for the bless. All right, so you will take, uh, you will take two points of bludgeoning damage as he cuffs you uh, on the shoulder. Uh, the other one that uh, Kari is sort of calling out is... Look out, Cloak, he... Oh, oh sorry, that had to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker! Uh, he is going to cast a spell, and uh, a sort of sickly white light appears over you, swirling. It looks like corrupted starlight, and it bursts this starfire down on you. Make a dexterity saving throw, please, Kari. Uh, you succeed, so you manage to twist your body out of the way, and the sacred flame... Uh, scorches the, the stones at your feet with radiant damage. These guys are not kidding. We need to take care of these. Uh, so the one, the, the cultist that is next to you, Kari, that struck you with its scimitar before is going to uh, basically throw his shoulder into you and try to knock you off your feet. So he's going to attempt to shove. So I'd like you to make a um, strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics, whichever you prefer. All right, so he embarrasses himself as he tries to throw his shoulder into you, and I assume that was dexterity. Mm-hmm. Yep, and you just kind of uh, you kind of place your hand on his shoulder and pirouette out of the way. Um, so we're going to have a strike at Kane with a scimitar, but uh, he can't get his blade unlocked from you, and you just sort of twist your sword around and cut his leverage so he can't strike. Uh, we will have one attempt to strike back at uh, Riodin, but uh, this time you just ah. sort of... Uh, Dodge backwards, and the tip barely slices your shirt. And we have, let's see, the one on Glass was slain. That was three. I think we're all, I think we're all good then. All right. Uh, so that is Riodin. All right, then. That, that has, has uh, quite had enough of this nonsense. I'm going to try one more time to inflict some wounds upon him. And I expect him. this time I will succeed uh, with any luck. Let's see. Uh, that is a 15 to hit. Oh, that gets him. That gets him, but good. So you good. grab a hold of him, like, with, a, with a, a surge of just irritation that he sliced your shirt. You reach out, grab him by the throat, and that greenish energy, just watch his flesh begin to turn gray and desiccate. 
That's nine points. Nine points of damage. All right, so he screams, which is cut off into this just gurgling cry. And his flesh begins to slough off and blacken, and he collapses dead at your feet. Holy hell. I smile. <laughs> Good night, sweet dreams. <laughs> Kari, your turn. So you are locked in with your uh, with your uh, true strike. Uh, I am going to take my short sword and attempt to do away with this final person. Uh, that's All right. supposed to be plus three on those, so it would be an 11 and a 21 with the advantage from the true strike. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, yeah, you hit. Absolutely. And that is going to be 1d6 plus one damage. Mighty five. Five. All right. So you uh, you wound him. He is indeed bloodied as your, your sword comes away stained with his blood. Can I uh, move away from him? After that, I don't want to be locked uh, just into combat with him. If I do, is that going to be an attack of opportunity? You will provoke an opportunity uh, attack, yes. Please help me. <laughs> <laughs> can my cat attack at all, or can it only do the help action? Your cat is a familiar, so it can take the help action. It can't attack. Okay, can I get her to prepare to help the next person who's attacking, then, if possible? Uh, yeah, uh, you know that uh, you can see Glaz uh, looks like he's getting ready to go and uh, go and strike, but he also uses spells that don't necessarily use attack rolls, so uh, Cane or Cloak would be excellent options to, uh, to help. So who would you like to send it to help? Cloak. All right. A kitty! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that would probably be, actually, that would probably be the cultist that is engaged with you at the moment is the closest. The other ones have been dispatched, so that'll work out just fine. Okay. But you slashed the acolyte, and he has to make a concentration saving throw, and he manages to maintain his, uh, his bless spell. Uh, so, Glaz, your turn. So are the two acolytes within five feet of each other, or are either of the acolytes in five feet of each other of the uh, cultists? There is an acolyte and a cultist. The ones on uh, Kari are in five, are within five feet of each other. Okay, so uh, Glaz will look over and seeing that these two are right there, um, he is reaches down and with a uh, sort of all but graceful gesture from his sort of large uh, trolkin hands, uh, sort of gathers up this frost off of the uh, cultist that he had killed and it becomes a ice knife and he whips it at the, um, at the, uh, at the acolyte, the caster. Um, and let's see how this goes. Uh, 13. You got him. Nice. You got him. So he is, uh, he is reeling back in combat, sort of, uh, desperately attempting to fend off Kari's blows. But with her, um, with her divine insight, she is just stepping through his guard as if she knows where he's going to be. And uh, she herds him directly into your, your flinging ice shard. Okay, and so with that, uh, he takes two points of piercing damage, but he now needs to make a, 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 a DC 12 dexterity saving throw. Uh, which he just done blue. So... Do whatever it do to me. And the uh, cultist who's within five feet of him needs to make one as well. Also has to make it. Uh, <laughs> nope. So they both, in addition, take six points of frost damage as the knife hits the first one and explodes in a uh, in a sort of cloud of shards, uh, injuring both him and the one next to him. Beautiful. 
the acolyte who just took that ice shard full in the side of his chest stumbles backwards as it explodes, and then he flips backwards over a pile of rubble and lands half-frozen and unmoving. Uh, the cultist desperately tries to shield his face and ends up with just uh, his forearms and hands riddled with now bleeding uh, ice shards stuck into it. She saved my life once. You do not mess with my friends, I tell you that. That's right. Uh, so that was Glaz. Kane, still locked with the uh, the dark cultist. I am going to... I'm going to make a... I'm going to try and get around uh, this guy's defenses and uh, and carve him up good. Uh, so... Alright. That is a... 18. Alright, so you... Uh, with the leverage you gained the last turn when you locked his blade, you managed to throw him a little bit off guard and you just slash right across him. Do damage. Okay. That is max damage. That's 12 points of damage. Nice. You slice his head from his shoulders. There's a... And he just sort of stands there blinking, and then his body falls left, his head falls right. <laughs> That's very good. And uh, there's a, a, a crimson spray of drops that sort of marks your cheek. Kane just sort of licks the blood that flecks on his lips and just turns aggressively towards the next man in his way. So as he does, you can see the, the faint tips of his fangs descending just ever so slightly at the taste of blood. <sighs> always with always with the flash in the trash. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so there is uh, one remaining acolyte and uh, one remaining terribly wounded cultist who's going to be picking ice out of his face for the rest of his life, which will be very short. Cloak, you're up. Uh, who's in front of Akari? Uh, so as you... As you move forward, uh, the um, you were helping on the cultist, right, Kari? Indeed, yes. Okay, so so as you move, uh, as you get ready to uh, choose your target cloak, you can see that cat darts out of the darkness, almost appearing as as if out of black smoke, and swipes its claws along the uh, the calf of the cultist, and you see like this little trail of ice sort of form and sting it and it, it the, the cultist yelps in pain and looks down at this and completely takes his eyes off you. You have advantage if you would like to attack. Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, so let me see if I can do this right. Alright, here we go. Uh, does yeah, that would be a 22. Oh yeah, give me some damage. Okay, uh, and so uh, as he attacks him and he's like, look, cat scratch fever. And then he is, uh, as he's not paying attention, he's literally jumping up and like jabbing at his throat with, ooh, ooh 12 points of nice. damage. All right, cloak of max damage. Uh, all right, so he uh, is not even looking and he barely notices as the blade strikes up under his jaw, through his soft palate and into his brain. And he stiffens and collapses at your feet. The hell of a disease. <laughs> uh, all right, so there is one remaining acolyte. Uh, he is going to look around at the just slaughtered remains that were once his uh, his minions. And in any any sort of normal situation, you would expect to see at least a pang of fear, uh, a little bit of hesitation. You see nothing. Just a grimace uh, stretches the face visible beneath the kind of half mask that he wears, and he screams out a curse in umbral and uh, calls down... A burst of radiant flame upon a cloak. Cloak, make a dexterity saving throw. Uh, so, hold on. I gotta make sure 
I get a thing for being a gnome. No, that's intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. All right, here comes uh, here to my dexterity saving throw. Uh, plus four, a ten. Uh, that will fail, unfortunately. Oh. It's a DC twelve, so you will take some radiant damage from this sickly white light. Okay. Four points of radiant damage sear you as you try and twist out of the way. Ah! Ah! Clock, be careful there. Uh, so the rest of you, as as that uh, as that cold radiance uh, sears into him, his cloak that he wears with all of the plants and the billowing, some of that moss withers, and you could swear that it looks like the cloak itself flinches away from the energy. Maybe just a trick of the uh, the shadows playing around your dark vision. It's totally what it is. Uh, so that would be Riordan. Oh, goodness. Uh, how many of these guys are left standing? How, and who's closest to me right now? Only one. All of Ooh. all of the cultists, uh, all four of the cultists, and one of the acolytes is slaughtered. Only one remains, although he is unhurt. Eh. All right, fine. I will uh, approach this gentleman lively, and I will attempt to stab him with the uh, dagger which is on my hip, because I think he probably deserves it. Uh, so <laughs> you've been asking for this, haven't you? That's uh, a fourteen to hit. 14 gets him. As you punch through his robes, it does not seem like he's wearing any sort of armor underneath. Oh, dear. That was a mistake for you, wasn't it? Oh, dear. Six points of damage into your flesh. And I'm going to get really close when I do it. Uh, sorry, how much How much damage did you say? Six. Six. Oh, he does not care for that at all. However, uh, so as as the blade bites in, and it does indeed, uh, it's a palpable strike, and you can feel it cut into flesh and possibly even nick bone, and it comes out covered in his blood. He looks down, and this uh, this red gout just sort of spurts into his palm, and he <laughs> and looks at you, and his eyes just sort of get wider, and he reaches out with his own bloody hand. I'm like licking his the dagger right now, like I'm alert from uh, Fellowship. <laughs> nice. Very good, very good. Kari, it's your turn. As this cackling madman reaches his bloody palm towards your companion. Uh, I'm going to strike out with my short sword, uh, hoping to stop this person from hurting him any farther. Very well. With a 21. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, you got him good. Damn. Also, Fader Grant gives a nat 20 to McLoken. Happy birthday. Aw. Thanks, Mike. Uh, seven slashing dam- piercing damage, my apologies. Uh, you're striking with a short sword? Yes. Alright, so as he reaches out his hand toward, uh, toward Ryoden, you just sort of take a little half step forward and just drive your blade into his ribs under his outstretched arm, and his, uh, laugh just sort of lingers on and slowly dies on his lips. <laughs> and he falls forward. So, uh, the sounds of battle echo in the chamber for a moment and then die, and uh, you're left with the smell of blood tinged with mold, uh, and these, uh, these corpses littering the ground around you. They must have been diseased to join in a hunt like this. They must not have thought that they could win. They didn't seem to have any problem with dying. <laughs> no, they're pretty weak. That is not the natural way of things. People usually don't just charge into death unless cornered. He had quite a mad look in his eyes. Perhaps there was something stranger at work. They were certainly no common bandits like those brigands back there. Dan, question. Was there a light source in here? 
there was not. It seemed like they could see in the gloom as well as you can. Although, by all appearances, they look to be human, which seems very strange. Okay. Humans have such a strange way about them with death. You look like a human, too. And he's like, he's like taking off the mask uh, and like, and looking at the mask and like investigating these people for stuff. But darling, I'm so much more. Okay. So the masks are basically just simple leather half masks and they've been painted black. Um, however, on their faces, the ones who were masked, uh, they, they have intricate tattoos blacking out their eye sockets around their eyeballs and then stretching off into umbral script going up their foreheads and across their bald scalps and down their cheeks, even down to their neck and disappearing beneath their robes. Uh, can I roll Arcana? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. I, I'd be like, Lass, look! <laughs> can I, uh, yeah, can I actually give you advantage on it? Uh, give you a, assist with the, you know, if these are either runes or glyphs that something uh, that Glass knows about? Yes. Uh, and I will say that, yeah, you can absolutely help out and give advantage. Uh, and I will note that Glaz and Kari both recognize these not only as umbral script a as a language. It's sort of um, it's not really meaningful, but it's invoking shadow magic. You said that he had cried out in umbral with his last cast. Was that just to cast his last spell mm -hmm. or was that an actual curse that he threw on us? Uh, it was definitely just sort of a, a venomous curse, uh, like he was condemning your souls to the void, and uh, and then it sort of segued into the verbal component for his spell. Okay, uh, I, I got 11 on that arcana. 11? Uh, Alright, so given that they are able to point out that it has to do with shadow magic, uh, and the, the particular placement of these glyphs and such, um, you suspect that this feeds into how they were able to see and thrive in the dark so well, that these tattoos must have been infused with some sort of dark magic that hmm. uh, that makes them at home in the in the darkness. Now that is very interesting. That is super interesting. Like they can they can see in the dark when they can't see in the dark because they got tattoos. I mean, I never heard of that. While my companions are discussing this, can I start picking at the bodies? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, just searching them for anything worthwhile? Anything that would be better than the equipment that I have here. Oh, unlikely. Uh, unless you fancy a scimitar over a short sword. Um, the... Uh, well, so there are um, some useful spell components you might be able to scavenge from the two acolytes that you could replenish some of your stocks with. They have component pouches. Um, each of them carries a club. Uh, the cultists all carry scimitars. And uh, believe they're wearing leather armor. I'll take everything and anything I think that's valuable and put it in a pile for people to go through. I'm not trying to like take it from behind their backs. And yeah, S sure. If you're if you're looking to scavenge things that you can hawk later, the the uh, the scimitars and the leather armor would be worthwhile if you want to spend a few minutes stripping them. I'll take that scimitar if you don't mind, Carrie. I toss it to him. Very well. Uh, so, uh, poking through the robes of one of the tattooed acolytes, you find in an inner pocket, uh, you find three small onyx gems, and they're worth a total of uh, 50 gold pieces together. I find two small onyx gems, you say? <laughs> 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 Alright, sorry. Three gems worth 60 gold. Two gems I mean, two worth, worth 40, 40 gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so it's a second that 24 cloak from Genli Eye. Thank you, my friend. Happy birthday, my oh, friend. Oh, thank you. 
And just remind me on procedure, uh, he gets to choose when to use those, yes? That's right, yeah. Uh, players get to use nat 20s when they want, and a DM calls when we have to use nat 1s. Very well. All right, so yeah, you spend a few minutes uh, stripping the gear from them, no problem. So so Cloak, uh, he would be uh, analyzing the tattoos a little bit further, and if there's any, specifically if there's any blood on it, and taking his cloak and trying to wipe the blood off, and then like start reading it. And being like, oh, okay, that's a, that's cool. That's all he's doing. Okay, so you're wiping. Okay, you're just cleaning the blood off of your blade while while reading off the the runes. Well, no, on the, he's off the bodies. Like, so basically, he's like oh, using okay. using the cloak to clean off the 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 blood and like, yeah, and and wiping the uh, the the ink runes off of the cultists. Is that what you said? Well, if they do come off, but any blood, he's like oh, trying yeah. to wipe off uh, too to get a better oh, read sure. on it. Uh, you, you're also going to pick up a, uh, a Ferd's Nat 20 from Mike, and he's also going to give you a, a magic item, which, Dan, you can decide upon the uh, the nature of, like Cloak will get at some point. All right, so I'm sorry, there was a magic item for uh, for McLoken? That's right, yeah. Uh, is that what I understood? Yeah. You this can is the coolest right. birthday ever. Okay, well, let's let's get interesting with this. Give me one moment while you guys plan your next move. R- remind me, what exactly are we here for again? We're searching for something, although I got a bit confused of all that blood back there. <laughs> These lost articles, don't you remember? There were some, uh, we were hired to come down here. They felt that they had come down this direction. But, uh... What I am interested in is these runes. This is very peculiar that they would have runes uh, on humans in this way. Um, you see, uh, I call Kari over. Kari, dear, uh, if you will take a look here, see if we... Uh, this is shadow magic. This is uh, your purveyance, yes? You have used this before. Things along these lines, not this specific magic, but... You can notice the uh, the curvature of the rune here. I'm just trying to point out to you that this is something that you might know about. You'll see it is something right here. Are you looking? Kitty, right here. <laughs> she nods slowly, <laughs> waiting for the usual tyrant of these two, uh, communicating back and forth. Yes, Glass. And she sends uh, Varus over instead of herself and uses the cat to take a look to see if it is indeed shadow magic, trying to seem a little bit more aloof. You are very astute in your studies. You have a voice like honey. Why, thank you. Cloak, as you are wiping down the bodies, um, you notice on the other acolyte, the one you didn't really check so closely, when you get over to him and start clearing off the tattoos to get a better look there, this one has a very thin thread he's wearing around his neck, which is probably why your uh, your compatriots missed it. Uh, as you get in there to try and clear the blood away, you find it. Uh, and the thread kind of has fallen behind him, uh, behind his back on the ground, uh, but it looks like he's wearing something bound around his neck. Oh, uh, I would try to unbind it and see what he's wearing. Sure. I mean, it's just a little black thread, so you can just kind of pop it loose. Uh, you pull it up, and it's weighted on the end. You pull it up, and dangling before your eyes is a small key. Uh, you can't really make out much detail about it other than its shape. Uh, it's heavy, so it's probably made of something along the lines of iron. Uh, but it's um, it just kind of spins on the end of the thread, and as you watch it, it spins a little bit faster and then spins, uh, reverses direction. Do Glaz's eyes widen at at a key such as this? <laughs> mine, mine, Fandy, I found I, 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 I understand that that is yours, but the, um, I, I, is this is this something I recognize, Dan? 
in my readings and um, uh, with uh, my study of of uh, ley lines and geomancy. Uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't have anything to do with ley lines, uh, likely. But anyone uh, who is okay, it's not the, it's not it's not one of those keys. <laughs> It is not a key of Velus. Uh, <laughs> no, I was no, no, getting no. very excited uh, no, there. It looks, like, it looks just kind of like a very simple little key with just kind of, you know, little teeth. Doesn't look very uh, intricate or anything. Well, there are doors around here. So it might open one of those. Just kind of fit in the palm of your hand. Uh, however, it does look, it does seem to be behaving very strangely. Um, you know, when you hold something up by a string, it kind of dangles. But it seems to, like, pick up momentum on its own. And then change it, and it's it's behaving very oddly. He would he would kind of like then do this, kind of like move around to see if the key moves in oddly. It it doesn't seem like it, like it doesn't douse in any particular direction or anything okay. like that. It's just that that momentary sort of odd uh, physical behavior from it that that tips you off to this is this is not a perfectly normal key. Oh no! I, I was gonna look at glass and be like, "Can can you tell what it is? It's not moving right. It's like it might be magic." Yes, I would. I, it seems as though this uh, behaving uh, like a magical has magical properties to it. Um, while I can't do it right this moment, uh, when we have a chance, about, give me about ten minutes. I will not take it from you. I will give it back. But uh, I can tell you about what that uh, what it might be able to do for us. In the meantime, do be careful. You never know off of cultists like these if something might be uh have a little whammy whammy on the side of it you know what i'm talking about uh, especially if they're, <laughs> especially if they're messing with like umbral and shadows and stuff that i don't know can i send varus while they're talking to just kind of keep an eye around us just... yeah absolutely uh where do you want to send him just i'll just keep in a general like perimeter yeah just a general perimeter look and uh, uh they had asked me uh they'd asked kari sorry if i recognized any of just kind of the remnants or the magic if it uh was from the shadow realm at all if it was something that kind of spoke out to me in that way what about the the runes or the room? Uh, the runes and the magic just in general for what they were having their spell components maybe you uh you were able to recognize those glyphs and that script uh immediately basically as it is invoking shadow magic and it seems like those tattoos were um mystically infusing these beings with the essence of shadow itself which is probably how they could see in the dark and and some of the other uh, things that they were doing glass your senses are keen on the hunt once again this is indeed shadow magic so Dan, is this something that I could co- I could copy down? Um, not necessarily that's a spell, but just as a rune to to know about. Um, you could certainly take some notes if you wanted to do further research on it to try and figure out more later. Yeah, Glass will take a moment. He pull out a piece of parchment and uh, sketch them up. Since there's kind of a lot going on right now, I might suggest this is a good time if you guys wanted to bind your wounds, take a breather. It would be a good time for a short rest I would love um, that. to yes. identify the key, to to copy those things, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. If it seems as though we're out of danger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the danger seems past at the moment. Uh, it looks like there's another uh, corridor running off into the cartways on the far side of the chamber, but... Um, you can send the uh, the cat familiar down a ways, and he can uh, either report back or you can see through his eyes even that um, it goes quite a ways, and there's no uh, no visible threats down there. Am I am I able to roll a hit dice for uh, to regain some health? Yep. Yeah, you guys can complete a short rest, and and if- as everyone is taking a short rest, not having suffered uh, in combat uh, and having no input on the conversation, Kane. Is going to post himself um, 
in the corridor uh, as sort of quietly as he can. Seeing it's sort of a longer car- corridor, he will slide his sword back into its sheath and uh, take his bow, knocking an arrow, just in case anything decides to come prying. Sure. So he'll just keep a watch down the corridor and uh, be ready to put an arrow through it if it's uh, unfriendly in any manner. Got it. So Glaz, uh, he actually takes, uh, unattaches the uh, the skin, this big uh, skin that he has uh, with this map of uh, Midgard on it. And he takes it off of his belt and from over his shoulder and throws it out and puts it on the reverse side where you see all these runes and circles and different patterns. And uh, one of those is uh, one of the places on that skin where he's tattooed in a uh, an identification uh basically circle for him to do his little ceremony and he takes a moment and uh just uh sort of uh waving his hands over it you can see the runes begin to move and glow a little bit as he casts uh identify ritualistically goodness aren't you clever glass ritually yep all right so over the course of 10 minutes he uh he lays out this this uh cloak that you've seen him wear all the time that has this map of midgard essentially inked into it and uh you've seen that there are just numerous strange glyphs and diagrams uh sort of tracing all over this map and you've learned over time that this is how he encodes his spells this this cloak is essentially his spell book uh and so 10 minutes pass and you are uh drawn mystically in tune with this strange key that as you've had a little time to handle it you are quite certain it's magical um and after you complete your spell you learn that it is called a mystery key uh, so the, it has a, um, it has a, a, a weak, but potentially very useful enchantment on it. It has a small chance, 5% in game terms, of opening any lock that it is inserted into. You got that from Xanthar's. Yeah, I love that key. See, this is basically a pick-your-own-birthday present. Like, it's a random birthday present, because you'll unlock something at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, we also have a, uh, <laughs> a viewer decision here for you, Dan, when you're ready. Ooh, cool. Oh, my friend Cloak, you will especially appreciate this. Uh, this key. Now, you can put it in any lock, anywhere. And one of them, it will eventually open. It is magical that way. It has a percent a chance for you to open it. So you always should give it a try, especially if it might be something really good. But once you use it, once it actually unlocks something, poof, it's gone. What about the, what about a bakery after hours and then we open it and then... Oh, yes, I have plans. That sounds delightful, <laughs> darling. Yes, we should. You know how I like the snickerdoodles. If you do use it for that, I would like you to bring me back a snickerdoodle, okay? I, okay, I will bring me back a snickerdoodle. I do not understand the need to buy your food when you can hunt for it. You can't hunt snickerdoodles, darling. Trust me, I've tried. Have you have you seen a cookie running through the forest? I don't think so. Cloak is, in this instance, correct, Carrie. I haven't seen one. It looks like we are confusing you very much. At some point, I will introduce you to the snickerdoodle. I guarantee you will enjoy it. First thing we do once we get back. All right, Will, you said we had a... Uh... Will, you said we had a, a viewer decision of some sort? That's right, yeah. You can ask the chat a question, and we'll poll it and see what I come up with. Okay. All right. Uh, just any sort of question at all? What'll happen next? That sort of thing? Yeah, you can do what happened next. You could have it like, what magic item do they find? Or what's behind the door? What kind of trap do they run into? Whatever you feel like. 
Oh, interesting. Try, right. try good um, stuff, though. It's your first time here. You want to make friends say. on Encounter Roleplay. Like, <laughs> what, what, wonderful, what wonderful games and toys. What a great DM you are. You're the best. How many Snickers did they find? <laughs> <in> the <next laughs> <round? laughs> okay, so for the... For the first general kind of permanent magic item that we encounter, should I roll on the negative quirks table or the interesting uh, interesting Ooh. traits table? Interesting beneficial. Nice. Oh, he's, he's conniving, oh, ladies and gentlemen. You are mean. <laughs> we all know what that answer is going to uh, be. <laughs> yeah, Chad is great. I love you, Chad. So, uh, how do I learn this answer? Do I have to watch the chat? What's going on? I'm excited. <laughs> this is new. Uh, he he has he has magic that he uses on Twitch, and he actually puts up a thing where you can click okay. on the screen and do the vote, and then he will tell us what the vote outcome is, and it is all part of the encounter roleplay magic. So we got what negative negative quirks for the first one, and the second one is positive traits. Uh, positive trait. Yeah, we'll call it that. I don't remember the specific names of them, but from earlier. Uh, I had a wild magic surge. Uh, Caster has vivid dreams of his own death each night, which is really interesting because my character, uh, mm-hmm. one of her bonds, I suffer awful visions of a coming disaster. So that just kind of ties right in there. That's awesome. Quick DM question. Um, with doing the yes. identify spell, would I have time during this short rest to also use arcane recovery? Or is that be mutually exclusive? No, you can do that just as part of finishing a short rest. Okay. So, uh, and in fact, you probably can't do the uh, you can't do the um, the spell during the short rest. But you guys have plenty of time. You can cast the spell then rest. No big deal. Okay. Um, one extra donation has just come in here from uh, Socratic Method Man. Cheers for two thousand five hundred and to give his birthday, homie, a celestial labradoodle mount. <laughs> its name is Puff. Puff will serve you well, Dan. I give this information to you to use as you please and to bring in whenever right, so feels appropriate. So at some point, he needs to get a celestial dog mount. That's correct. <laughs> That's pretty beautiful. That's pretty amazing. Uh, I would love Puff. Puff is my favorite. I roll around with him and he's cuddles. <laughs> Wait, you just put a dog in a cat party? Oh, this is going to be great. Oh, this is going Got to be it. great. Okay. I also have a pet mouse. This is this is going to be an interesting campaign. We're going to have a zoo soon. I do have a pet mouse. You have a pet mouse? Varus chases that mouse occasionally. I never let Varus kill it, but I will screw with you every now and then and make the mouse fear for its life in that douchey cat kind of way. Do we all have animal companions apart from Rio? Uh, Wait, you have a bird oh, got, too. I've this got is you great. Darling. You're my animal companion. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, while you're while you're keeping watch, uh, Kane, your owl sort of uh, flutters over on ghostly wings and lights on your shoulder and just sort of stares down the the hallway with you. And uh, the rest of you, occasionally, the owl turns its head 180 degrees to look back at you, and then goes back to looking down the hall. Interestingly, this is an eagle owl, and eagle owls are legendarily, superstitiously known as ill omens. Uh, specifically, they spell death and disaster and uh, the ill fate. And as a bounty hunter, he makes a fantastic companion. Uh, all right, so everybody completed their short rest. Uh, do we have the results on that poll, or is that going to be a later thing? 
Oh, that is definitely a negative quote. Yeah, overwhelmingly. Right there. But not quite as close. It was sixty-four percent rather than a hundred, which I was expecting. So there's some rooting in our favor there in the chat. Thank you guys. Yeah, the, that's, the, that's the, not terrible. That was us. That was all of us like voting, like making fake accounts and voting. I'm not even I'm not even gonna lie, I voted for the negative quirk. Screw you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'd even vote because I'm afraid. Um, so I think the only thing that Cloak would do, like as he's resting, is uh, um, he would be sitting next to uh, Glaz or by Glaz as he's like identifying, and he's like in his like trance and he's like focusing for the ten minutes, and uh, you would see like a little uh, mouse come out from the foliage that's on his shoulder, and it's a it's a little squeaky. <laughs> And he's like, oh, hedgehogs. And he's got like a little bit of bread and he's feeding it. And then he sees the cat and he's like, no, kitty, not today. Nuh-uh. No, you're not playing with her. And then the owl comes in and he's like, okay, Tonks, you got to go back in. Uh, this is not the area for you. <laughs> this is this is death. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so uh, as you are all uh, going through binding your wounds, taking your rests, uh, recovering your uh, recovering your magical energies, and and keeping watch, Riodin, uh, you sort of leaning back against the wall, relaxing, lamenting the tear in your shirt. Uh, you you're looking out over these uh, these bloodied bodies and the uh, the pools uh, quickly cooling and coagulating on the stones, and you just sort of stare off into it for a while into this blood-soaked stone. Years ago, when you were still living in a favor of the Blood King, your, your noble family ruled a small, uh, a small province of the greater Duchy of Morgau. You remember serving in the small shrine to Morena, the Red Goddess. You remember the differences in the dogma that you and your family preached, and you kept it quiet because there were others who worshipped uh, who worshipped the, the Red Maiden that didn't take kindly to your, as they saw it, coddling and weak approach to her worship. But why waste all that life? That's what you thought. And that was the uh, that was the approach you took to her worship. Your you you weren't the slaughterers of uh, of these bearers of blood that the the red goddess wants so much. You were the shepherds tending the flock. And yes, they would give of themselves, and even you at times would offer your blood up to your lady. And in exchange, she gave you power. She gives you the ability to heal wounds, to cure diseases, to, to strike down your enemies, to turn their very blood against them, should they dare rise against you and against her will. But the greater duchy being what it was, and the living sacrifices and orgiastic rituals that uh, reveled in the death and bloodletting and uh, lustful aspects of Morena forced your family to keep your... Uh, particular take on your religious observances secret. Despite that, your family's influence began to grow. And it wasn't long before a woman, a vampire, you knew it immediately when uh, you saw her standing in your family's foyer speaking to your mother. Uh, she carried herself uh, unlike any of the living. And uh, what are Riordan's feelings toward vampires in general as a dumpier? 
In general, I have no real disdain for them. Indeed, I at times will find nobility and worship in those of elder blood. However, there are many of them whom I distaste, particularly those who will feed too viciously of the flesh and of my flock. Indeed. Uh, and what of the idea that in the Blood Kingdom, that particularly a Dampier uh, and one of noble birth, uh, that the, it is seen as a reward or an increase in station to eventually be chosen to become a full vampire? What do you think about that? I would be lying if I would say that I did not myself dream of such lofty heights. But others, well, might not be quite so deserving. Certainly, certainly. So when you see this, um, this simply dressed in, in a uh, red uh, traveling robe with uh, sort of a skin-tight crimson and black leather underneath it, uh, you see this vampirus standing there and you have that moment where you're just, just a little bit awestruck. And uh, she seems to be conversing very amiably with your mother. Um, you don't detect any tension in the room, and that is always uh, is always a bit of a question which way one of these encounters is going to go. And for the moment, this one seems to be going well. So uh, she notices you coming down the stairs, and she smiles and beckons you forward. I walk towards her immediately. She, uh, she touches you on the shoulder and pulls you in next to her to, to stand before this woman. And she says, Ryoden, I am so pleased to introduce you to Kosina... Horosu. She is handmaiden to the High Priestess herself, and she has come to spread such good news for us. And the, uh, the vampirus affects uh, a just... You have never see, seldom seen such physical grace. This just short, rolling curtsy, and then she straightens right back up and offers you this smile that, uh, that manages to quicken your pulse a little bit. My lady, it is a pleasure to have you in our household. How can I be of your service? Not nearly as much as it is a pleasure for me to be here, accepting your gracious hospitality. Uh, I was just telling your mother that word of your faith has reached her grace's ears. And she, uh, she smiles again to sort of mollify that sudden pang of fear that, uh, that, that wells up within you. And she says... Times for the kingdom may be changing, and her grace has seen that your way is the future. The brutality and warmongering that King Lucan has pulled this duchy into, it can lead only to death and destruction. Why, the, the servants, of course... And when she mentions Kors, there's a little bit of a... Yeah. He's, a he's a warlike sun god, worshipped uh, throughout the crossroads. And you know that his paladins, who swear the Oath of Radiance, are among the most feared among the Blood Kingdoms. Because it seems that their holy devotion makes them perfectly suited to destroy vampires and undead in general. As they channel the, the power of the sun. Should Lucan's ambition grow too far... All of the crossroads, and even the Seven Kingdoms beyond, perhaps even the far-off Grand Duchy of Dornig, will unite against us, and against that combined might of all of Midgard, we cannot stand. And she sort of watches you to gauge your reaction. I... 
I agree. I, I did not know there were others in our order who so believed as such, but I have been granted visions of the future, and this is what I have seen as well. Our great and noble kingdom being scattered down before us for Lucan's ambition. What this greater duchy needs is someone with more control over his bloodlust. Yes, and this unchecked desire to grow our borders, it will lead to nowhere prosperous. We have seen what has happened with the Imperium of the Ghouls. Do we wish to be driven underground to scratch a living out of tunnels? I do not. Never. That is for slaves and the cattle. She, uh, she uh, offers you and your mother just this sort of relieved sigh and smile, and she says, Come then, we have much to discuss. We should summon the Lord of the House, and there are plans to make. And so she, she uh, is drawn into your house by your mother, and your father comes and, uh, and joins with her, and you begin discussing uh, what very quickly to your ear sounds like the brewings of a coup against the Blood King. Uh, in addition, she begins laying out her plan to gather your teachings and begin to send them out to uh, create splinter and um, uh, even hidden cults in, in lands beyond the Blood Kingdom to, to, to see to it that this, uh, this vein of your faith uh, grows strong. Excellent. And so uh, you spend perhaps the next, uh, the next year and a half uh, helping to oversee um, uh, the codification of your teachings being written down into into particular books, uh, very careful to hide it amongst the more mainstream scripture uh, of the worship of Morena that it wouldn't be discovered too easily, uh, and begin descending agents out to other cities in uh, in the crossroads and the seven seven cities to uh, begin setting up small shrines hidden hidden shrines to the, the proper and good and fruitful worship of the Red Goddess that will see you through these dark times. Incredible work is being done. So, uh, you mentioned to me that Riodin had a paramour back in, in the Blood Kingdoms. Do you have some information on that individual that you might uh, uh, share with us a little bit? Share with the DM? Why? <laughs> What a good idea. Uh, yes. Um, I've taken several lovers and interests uh, over the time, but uh, my most uh, recent one and most serious one is a man named Geniel. He's a handsome young boy and uh, Dampier, much like myself, in a similar noble house. Unfortunately, his family do not see eye to eye with mine, certainly on not, not on the matters of uh, marina and blood worship, so we've had to keep things a little on the down low, but uh, never mind. That's how I like it. Certainly. Uh, so as time goes on, uh, so can you spend that, uh, spell that name for me? Uh, I will type it for you in the chat, but it is uh, J-A-N-I-E-L. All right. So over that time, as you, uh, as you begin making these preparations to send the, uh, the, the budding seed of your, your faith out into the world, uh, Janielle begins to become more and more interested in your work. 
And uh, although you may be perhaps wary at first because what you're doing is <laughs> quite frankly treasonous and, uh, and heretical in the eyes of many uh, in, in the faith of the Red Goddess, um, you quickly grow to trust him. And uh, he becomes your closest confidant and uh, one of your best agents in seeing to it that uh, messages are discreetly carried and received between your contacts in other cities and, uh, and in rallying your um, allies within the greater duchy. Over the course of uh, perhaps a few years as these plans are laid. Um, over that time, tensions begin to escalate. It becomes clear that Lucan is preparing for war. He is uh, seeing to it that more, uh, more and more raids happen into other lands to bring in living bodies that can either be food or transformed and uplifted into undead troops uh, to, to swell the, the Blood Kingdom's already impressive ranks. Uh, and so uh, your family begins to grow tense as, uh, as the preparations for war increase, even as your preparations amongst your faith do. During this time, this perhaps... What would this have been? Uh, not very long ago at all, in fact. Uh, how long How long has it been that you've been in exile, uh, Will? Uh, I think uh, Riodan is recently exiled, so it could be as as little as like a month or a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, just just a few months. Kane, so you're thinking back to uh, uh, your uh, the the job that went wrong. You'd spent so many years wandering the length and breadth of Midgard, visiting the different lands. You don't even remember uh, what it was about the Blood Kingdom and the endless crusades and the battles against those, those cursed, sun-worshipping butchers who could just wade through otherwise immortal undead flesh, cutting through you like sunlight through shadow. At some point, there was just too much, and you turned your back on your oaths, you turned your back on your liege, and you just left. You would uh, swing back through occasionally. You maintained contacts within the, within the Blood Kingdoms. But more and more, you found yourself drifting away and uh, into the crossroads. And at the center of the crossroads, you found the free city of Zobek. And you remember fighting there amongst the, uh, the mercenary companies. You remember helping to cast down the accursed House Strauss that once uh, tried to spread the taint of infernalism and shadow magic throughout all of the land from their castle near Zobek. Uh, and it was here that you finally found some semblance of peace, at least a, a shred of contentment. And doing what you did best, finding people, quietly watching, waiting, listening, learning the things that people didn't want you to learn simply by dint of uh, overlooking your presence since you uh, knew quite well how to make yourself blend into the background. You very quickly caught the attention of the secret police of the Blue House. The, uh, let us say, we, uh, the, the propaganda information and spy network that helps uh, support Zobek's rule. And you had conducted several missions for them that were quite successful. And as you rose through the ranks, you begin to get more and more sensitive and important missions. And the vast majority of these would be tail this person and find out who they talk to. Or uh, break into this uh, office at night and uh, leave this stone in an unobtrusive place where someone won't find it accidentally. 
Um, as your trust within the organization uh, rose, you began to be sent out to retrieve people, uh, people for questioning, people who might have uh, stepped over a line. And uh, the pay was good. The pay was excellent. And more than that, the connections were excellent because this put you in a position to know just about everyone in Zobek. From the highest born to the lowliest kobolds tinkering in the cramped streets and junkyards of the kobold ghettos. One night, a note appears for you at a dead drop. It appears with a familiar mark. You don't know who exactly sent it, but you recognize the mark as a trusted one. And you see a name, a sketch, and a sum of money that leaves no question in your mind what this individual's fate is to be. And it is not to be brought back anywhere. So uh, you see the name Goresh. Hammerstrike immediately strikes you as Dwarven. And with the name in the sketch and uh, quite a bit of coin in your pocket to loosen tongues and open doors, you very swiftly uh, find it simple to locate this individual. And you're shocked when you do. It is, uh, he is a member of a caravan from the Dwarven Cantons, not too far from Zobek. And it looks like he is preparing a return trip from the Temple of Rava, the clockwork goddess. And as you approach, you can hear the clattering of clockworks, the, uh, the, the, the clash of tools as they uh, create clockwork creatures and, uh, and marvelous devices. And perhaps even they're preparing to imbue a gear forged with life. And uh, you see this individual delivering what looks like materials and you're able to slip in close enough, not, not close enough to, to draw attention or, um, or, or give yourself away, but close enough to see that he is helping to unload some rather sturdy, heavily locked, heavily guarded chests. And you've been around long enough to know what's in there. They are strange metal alloys, the composition of which are a closely deadly guarded secret. And uh, so this individual is um, sort of scurrying about uh, helping move these chests into the temple. And once their work is done, the caravan saddles up and begins to head back out of town towards the gate. As you spend some time tailing him, how would you like to go about it? Just kind of, yeah, what, what's your approach here? Through the cities, Kane is everyone and no one. Kane moves uh, with the practice ease of someone who's uh, been here for long enough to sort of know all the back alleys, all of the uh, shortcuts, and occasionally he loses sight, but he never loses track of his prey, his quarry, uh, as they mingle their way through the streets. But knowing that it would be foolish to attempt anything in the city, he waits, he bides his time, and knowing that they won't outrun him with a heavy carriage, uh, probably laden with coin and uh, various other supplies heading back to the Iron Crag Mountains, he waits until they're on the road, till they're vulnerable. And there's a million uh, and one people, you know, bandit attacks are a common occurrence. If anything goes wrong, there will be no... There will be no doubt in anyone's mind that it was a simple bandit attack. Uh, but he doesn't plan for anything to go wrong. He finds an ambush point, gets ahead... And he waits. 
So are you going alone or to uh, sort of help sell the cover of the bandit attack? Do you want to take some of that heavy purse you were given and hire some uh, muscle and uh, some to, uh, to sort of assist in that? He hires a few people, but they are people who are new, uh, people who are eager for coin, uh, who won't be missed, and people who definitely aren't up to the job. Right. And their job is just to harry the caravan and probably lose their life in the uh, in the process. But they think this is going to be easy pickings on a on a poorly poorly guarded merchant caravan heading back heavy with coin to the to the cantons. Exactly, and he finds good cover um, and tells them that uh, they are to report back to him in Zobek when they complete it. But he follows them as they follow the caravan, gets ahead of them, and waits for. The slightly besieged caravan um, to uh, to come to his ambush point. All right, so uh, you pick um, a small rocky sort of pass through in the foothills of the Iron Crags. You don't want to get into the Iron Crags themselves because only madmen and idiots try to attack the dwarves on their home turf. Uh, that's a great way to end up dead or worse. Uh, but as you wait. You can hear the, uh, the, the caravan. You can actually see the cloud of dust coming in the distance before you can see or hear any sign of the wagons themselves. And uh, you, you permit yourself a little bit of a smile as you limber your weapons and crouch down in your hiding place in your little blind up on the, uh, the top of the, the perhaps 10 or 15 foot rocky bluff that the, the road passes right next to. Uh, as you, you watch your quarry being driven uh, so well into your trap. And it looks like the, uh, the muscle and cut purses, the, the thugs that you hired are doing their job excellently. They're just riding forward on their horses, whooping and hollering, and, uh, and doing their best to, to try and drive this caravan into what they think is an overwhelming force that's going to crush it, and then they'll split scads and scads of loot. Um, so as they come forward, you can see that the dwarves who are, uh, uh, manning the caravans are tense, but not entirely frightened, right? It looks like they're, uh, they're pretty intent on just leaving these guys in the dust as best they can and getting into the cantons. And you're quite aware that once they do that, if these poor bastards follow them in there, that they're, they're just done. They'll never be seen or heard from again. So as... The caravan is attacked from behind. He knocks an arrow and he aims for whatever mule, whatever horse is drawing the carriage. And he's going to remain out of this until the last of his allies fall. But he's going to stop the caravan. Okay. All right. Uh, so as they uh, as they drive into the to the short uh, rocky cut that you're waiting on top of. Uh, you loose an arrow and then just sort of step back behind the boulder and you hear the death scream of the horse and the crash of the wagon as it overturns and slams into the rocky bluff and then the dying begins. The dwarves can no longer run so they have to turn and stand their ground and when they do, reality comes crashing down on these poor bastards that you've hired to their deaths. Uh, they give out a hue and cry in the beginning, and within seconds, you can hear them begging for mercy and screaming for retreat and knowing full well that they will find very little. So when is it that you would like to make your strike? 
I wait patiently until the first uh, separates to sort of check over any of the bodies, uh, and they separate, like, maybe a few check the bodies, a few check the damage to the the carriage, Mm -hmm. uh, and he will isolate whoever seems to be, whoever gave the orders, whoever mustered them, uh, or wrote, like, drove the carriage, whoever seems to be leading this party uh, will be the first target. All right, so you're going to try and kill all the dwarves, not just the uh, the one you need to and get out of there. That looks like it like it might be a very tall order. Uh, you can see several of the dwarf soldiers uh, um, using heavy shields, and the way they move almost in lockstep in kind of a phalanx formation, that suggests to you that they are Canton shield bearers, which means that they are elite soldiers. In which case, no, I'll just uh, look for... Do I recognize um, my quarry amongst... Oh, very easily. Very easily indeed. Yeah, you can see... uh, And as you... uh, He is lightly armored, maybe maybe leather, perhaps. Uh, He is himself not a warrior. uh, So this looks like it's just getting better and better. Um, As you watch, the uh, several of the soldiers begin to fan out into the the woods that you uh, ran up through. Uh, looks like they're making sure that there are no other pursuers coming behind the uh, the fellows that they just slaughtered. Um, and then you can see the man that you were sent to deal with uh, currently trying to unhitch the dead horse from the overturned wagon so they can start uh, start riding it. He's at the front, closest to me. I line up the shot, wait until he's... Uh... He sort of stooped low to the ground uh, and aimed mm-hmm. probably for like the shoulder to go straight through down into his heart. All right. Uh, it's child's play. It's maddeningly simple. And it honestly starts to prickle in the back of your head that something might not be right at about the time when you loose the arrow and you realize just how easily this all, this all fell into place. Um, the arrow strikes home. He barely issues a cry and topples forward into the dirt. Um, A few of the dwarves, noticing the commotion, come over to uh, inspect and begin uh, heading up to his body. Uh, Not one to uh, waste a moment of uh, confusion. Uh, He quickly uh, sort of picks his quiver up, slings it across his shoulder and uh, his bow. um, And he... uh, is going to make his way, not straight back to Zobek, he's going to make his way just away from here into the most cover, melting into the... Gonna just melt off into the forest and then uh, lay low for a little while. Maybe swing through one of the outlying towns, spend some time there for a bit. Uh, as you're sort of running through this uh, this plan, uh, it, it, it's all just sort of coming together, and you're you're starting to keep an eye out around you, feeling like you know you're not out of this quite yet, but everything's going very very nicely. And as you break cover into the tree line, there is a sudden wall of steel swinging out from behind a great oak straight at your face and it catches you right on the bridge of the nose and there's just a flash of white and you find yourself knocked off your feet and as you come to your senses staring up at a heavily armored dwarven woman with her hair pulled back in just this series of tight braids that bun up giving an enemy nothing to uh to get a handhold on she has a massive shield with uh, dwarven runes all over it and a spear in the other hand. And she looks at you, kind of sneers, and 
gets ready to drive the spear tip into your throat. Uh, you're, you're, you're disoriented, your eyes, there's blood in them, but as you're staring up at her, you find that she makes one mistake. She meets your gaze. And so you think you might have one, one chance to save your life. Uh, predatory Charm uh, is a Dampier ability. Uh, as an action, you can magically beguile the mind of a creature that you can see within 30 feet. For one hour, you have advantage on charisma checks made against the target. If you or any of your allies attack or damage the target, this effect ends. However, when the effect ends, the target becomes repulsed by you and becomes hostile towards you until the next dawn, during which time they are immune to the effect. The hostile creature does not necessarily attack you outright, but it won't deal with you in any way and might actively try to hinder you. Right. Uh, I am going to look up at her and, uh, like, hand is, like, reflexively on the dagger on his hip, but there is a spear and she will easily... Driving for your throat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he quickly raises both his hands, cocks his head, doesn't say anything outright, just surrenders. And Mm -hmm. uh, can I give a... A persuasion or... Uh, essentially, you have sort of that reflexive moment where you can force that that uh, beguiling charm from your vampiric blood just sort of into that gaze that you, you lock eyes with her. And in that moment, you're hoping that that will be enough to at least stay her hand. Um, and and as you do, and you, you, you very obviously take your hand off your weapon and surrender, you can feel the tingle, sort of that, that hot rush through your blood, and uh, that, the pang of hunger that follows. Uh, but you see the spark just sort of flicker in her eyes, and, and there's this wash of relief as she stops the spear point uh, by twisting it to the side and driving it into the ground right next to your throat. And she sort of leans down and plants the weight of her plate armor on you and says, move and die. Do I make myself clear? He just nods slowly. So she, without really taking her eyes off of you, barks in Dwarvish. uh, And you can hear her voice just sort of echo off the cliffs. And in moments, there are more dwarves coming. Uh, And so you, you spend... You spend a few minutes uh, as they haul you up to your feet and uh, clap you in manacles, thinking, that was a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. And so you are dragged to the Dwarven Cantons, but thankfully not slain on the spot, thanks to your your ability to beguile her in that moment. Uh, And perhaps uh, more in your fortune, she does not accompany you to the cantons she turns and rides back to zobek so thankfully by the time your spell wears off she won't be in your presence and won't be likely to just off you then however uh you're dragged to the dwarven cantons of the iron crags and you are thrown before their leadership and very very quickly uh judged to be taken as a thrall because they've recognized your strength and your fighting ability, and there was apparently um, a report given that, uh, though you did murder this individual, they weren't anyone of particular import, and uh, you did cooperate fully thereafter and had the blessing of the shield maiden who captured you that you be taken. And so you are taken, and you are branded on your shoulder with the mark of the cantons, and you 
are pushed off to the depths of the mountains, where you will spend years, you know, in thrall to the, into the dwarves of the Iron Crags as essentially their slave. But at least they'll treat you better than other places treat their slaves. Mm, absolutely. And you know, the, the, the amount of time they're going to keep you under the mountain, essentially a blink of an eye for you. So honestly, not too bad. You can just go collect later, right? Yeah, I can go pick up my gold from my stash <laughs> later on. All right. And so uh, we'll flash forward again to Riordan. Now the clash of weapons fills your ears. There's the taste of blood in your mouth, and you can see your family's soldiers pressing through the manor where the Blood King's elite guard are being driven back by the surprise attack by you and your allies. You can see the, uh, the magics of the cult of the Red Goddess that have swayed to your side, holding back the elite of the elite of these vampire warriors. You know that your window is very small, but you know that you have a chance now. And you can see uh, every, your mother, your father, Janiel, uh, uh, they are all fighting tooth and nail because this is your last chance to stop the Blood King before he drives this terrible war out towards the rest of the, uh, to the, to the, rest of the nations. Uh, and you push your way into the main audience hall of the manor house where Lucan was touring, where he was uh, visiting his various nobles and uh, preparing them for war. And you see the Blood King himself in his black armor, seated in essentially a throne at the, the head of the room, and he is just staring calmly and impassively at the doors as you enter. Your soldiers surge in around you and immediately engage his personal guard. Between blade and magic, you manage to subdue them. And your father strides forward, his blooded sword at his side, uh, an exultant smile on his face, hand in hand with your mother, as they move forward toward the king that this entire time has been silent. So where are you and what are you sort of doing at this point? Yeah, I, I stride towards uh, Lucan along with my mother and father as well. Um, All right. And the intention being, as I have the rapier at my side, to all three of us execute him at the same moment. Very well. So as you stride forward, certain that between the three of you, you can deal with this black mark on your nation's history and be sure to steer your kingdom in a, in a, uh, in a positive direction, in a, a direction that will lead to life and growth and not death. He smiles and those massive fangs in his waxy, pallid skin and the black hair slicked and bound back. Uh, he cocks his head at you with these dark, almost dead eyes and says, Interesting. You think you have won something today, do you not? This is the end of you and your rule. Come then and end me. Very well. And he sort of leans back in his chair and holds out his arms. I look to my parents for a moment. They uh, they grimly nod and heft their weapons. I'm going to thrust a rapier, just puncture it through his heart. You lunge forward up the stairs, putting both hands on it, ready to punch this through this beast's heart when you hit an invisible barrier that is like a solid wall. It's like running full tilt into stone. Boom! Your wind, the wind is knocked out of you. Your parents come up short 
and and try to press forward, but there's something holding you back. And and in that moment, he smiles and snaps his fingers. An explosion rips through the dais in front of you. You and your parents are thrown into the air. Several of the soldiers, both Lucan's and your families, are caught in the blast, and you can see limbs and blood spray the walls. Uh, as you uh, you come to your senses, thrown back in the chamber, uh, you see your parents struggling to their feet and dazedly looking for their weapons. Kane, you've been waiting. You've been waiting for this very moment. You heard too late. You knew this was a trap. You heard them talking. They thought you were loyal. But you heard just enough to know that the priests of the Red Goddess had betrayed your friend's family. And it weighed heavily on you, knowing that you owed them from so long ago. They don't even really remember what their family did that was so, uh, that was so profound for yours. Uh, and you, you know that you have seconds, perhaps, to make a difference and try to repay some of that debt. Uh, you're not sure you can save everyone. You're not sure you can save anyone, but you can at least try. You've been waiting in the wings in uh, a side chamber near the uh, the audience hall, and as luck would have it, you can see that the young scion of the noble house is blasted by this horrible magic and thrown uh, near to where you are standing. Uh, thankfully, the guards nearby have been obliterated uh, by being caught too close in that explosion. Riordan uh, is laying there, and Kane steps forth uh, from the shadows. Uh, he doesn't draw his blade, he knows this battle is lost, but laying discarded on the floor is one of the shields from one of the fallen guards, which he yes. takes, and he slings it across his back to protect himself, and his charge, and he pulls Reardon up uh, with some effort, sort of bringing him close into sort of almost an embrace, and he tilts his neck to the side and pushes Reardon's lips against his neck. Reardon, your, your, your ears are ringing. All you can hear is just this high-pitched bell note that seems to be shaking through your bones, trying to shake them to pieces. Barely, you, you come to your senses and realize that you're being hauled up by this, um, you know him, you know his name, he's, he's Kane. He's, he's an old friend of, uh, as far as you know, your grandfather's. Uh, you've seen him a few times around the manor. Uh, you have no idea what he's doing here, and you have no idea why he's hauling you to your feet, but he is offering his throat to you, and you, you realize in that moment that you are on the verge of death. Yeah, I... Kane, what, what are you doing here? He just, like, holds the back of your head and stops you from speaking by just pressing you against... And there's sort of, like, you can, you can feel the pulse in his neck. It's steady. It, there's, no, there's no fear there. There's no hesitation. No, it's almost like a reflex um, when he's this injured uh, and the fang's just going to come out and he's going to bite into the neck to draw some blood from it and gain life essence. Your fangs pierce flesh easily and, and hot, vital, life-filled blood begins to roll past your tongue and pour down your throat. And, uh, and you draw that life into yourself and that at least stays the boatman's hand for now. Uh, you can feel your bones begin to knit and uh, what was almost certainly internal bleeding begin to subside. It's still 
horribly painful, and that ringing in your ears uh, uh, begins to, to quiet. You look over with blood running down your, uh, your chin, and you see your father desperately pulling himself up to his hands as the Blood King stands and sort of bored or uh, tiredly rolls his shoulders. Your mother looks over at you without even looking up. She makes eye contact with you for one moment and then moves her hand in a, in a very subtle gesture. There's a ripple in the air in front of you and you can see now as if looking through an image that isn't truly solid of a stone wall and uh, collapsed rubble blocking the doorway that, he, that, that uh, Kane pulled you into. You can see through it, but it's like a ghostly image from your perspective of this collapsed column uh, blocking the passage. We must get my mother's father, Janelle. He grabs you and sort of in your weakened state just sort of like holds you against him, blocking his body between any, uh, any attacks of opportunity that might come our way as he f- starts pushing you away Dragging down the away. stairs. Yeah, just dragging you away. No! From the shadows behind the throne, a figure steps forward, draped in white. And, uh, and Lucan looks over toward the, uh, the figure and nods once, and then looks out at the rest. The figure looks up, its hood kind of falls back a little bit, and you see the pale, emaciated flesh of a ghoul with great two-inch-long pointed teeth in its distended maw. Its tongue is long and sinuous like a snake's tail, and it just sort of flicks around its chin, and it lifts its claw-like hand and makes a gesture. As it does, there's this rumbling crack as spears of bone erupt out of the floor and impale every single person other than himself and Lucan in the audience chamber. The screams are immediate, and then most of them die. You see your mother and your father lifted perhaps ten feet into the air as these spikes punch through their bodies and just lift them up. And Lucan says, Take them to the roads. Impale them there for all to see the price of their treachery and foolishness. And prepare the army. And he sort of turns with a swirl of his cape and heads off in the other direction. And uh, Cain, desperately, perhaps against your protests, against your weak struggles, drags you uh, down the side passage to a servant's entrance to try and sneak you out of the city before you're found. Cain, what? What on earth you? What are you doing here? Why are you here? He sort of looks you up and down at sort of the injuries and stuff probably sort of reaches down and just slides a small what was probably part of a sword that has just been blown to pieces like a sliver of metal from your skin and he takes his arm round you and guides you away from the carnage alright the sounds of the battle die down the taste of blood is thick and heavy in your mouth and uh, you can just smell death behind you rolling out of the palace and the city surrounding it. I look back uh, with tears in my eyes uh, and the flames from the fire being reflected in them and uh, Ariadan will say, Cain, we will return to this place. We will be back for them. I will not allow my parents and Janiel to go in such a way. 
We will return. He looks out at the chaos, and as that happens, something circles from above and lands on his shoulder. And they exchange looks, and he nods solemnly, looking at the fire, and turns his back. All right. Cloak. Yeah. It's uh it's been a few weeks. You've been watching the road. You've been awaiting your mother's return after she kissed you goodbye and she took her wide-brimmed red hat with moss and acorn sprouts and little mushrooms growing upon it and as she put it on you could just sort of see that comforting veil that the caps create when uh, when one of your people places them on. And she told you to be good, listen to your father, and I'll be home with, uh, with what we need before too long. And she kissed you on each cheek, and she trotted off down the road, as she's done several times before. It's been nearly two weeks now, and there's been no sign, no word. And now, uh, every day, you've, uh, you've come out and watched at the edge of the forest, uh, the edge of the wormwood, uh, never stepping so much as a toenail out beyond the edge of the wood itself. And in fact, you can hear the whispers when you uh, approach the edge of the wood. Every day you, uh, you wait and you get a little more impatient and impatient grows uh, to nervousness and nervous is now growing into a pit of fear that's gnawing in your stomach. And as you wait every day that rolls by, more people come and wait with you. You can see neighbors that you know. You see people you don't recognize. You see guards from, uh, from the city watch that have come to the edge of the forest. And they're all watching the horizon expectantly, watching the, the road that comes over the hills, uh, watching for some sign of your mother to return with what's going to save you all. Finally, on the 14th day after she's been gone, you see her. And for a moment, there's that little leaping joy. There, there, there she is. Finally, she's coming. What took her so long? But you see her uh, staggering, running desperately as, as hard and as fast as she can. And she is holding her arm, or rather what's left of it. As she gets closer, you can see that her arm, while it's still there, is withered and desiccated and the flesh is pulled tight to the bone and there's a great nasty gash along her uh, along her bicep and it seems like whatever this strange malady is it is spread from that wound and you notice with horror that she doesn't have her cap no, no. and then you hear the hoofbeats you're you're watching it's uh it is perhaps it's even before dawn it's uh, the sky has just begun to grow uh, a pinkish orange in the east and you hear the hoofbeats and a massive steed comes barreling around the corner. It's black, midnight black. Its eyes, star sparkling voids. The rider, likewise, clad in black, heavy plate armor that clanks with every powerful step of the horse. He uh, has a shield Strapped to one arm, black face with uh, a strange new moon device upon it. You uh, recognize something in the back of your mind tickles, prickles about this rider. Uh, as he runs, the, the clods of earth and dust that kick up behind the horse's hooves, they seem to stop and hang in the air, almost like a still photograph 
as the horse passes. Uh, you can hear your mother's panicked, wheezing breaths as she drives her, her body as fast as she can toward the wormwood, trying to evade what uh, this, this just sable apparition of, of death behind her. And you hear your father, his hand clenches on your shoulder, and he says, No, it's one of Grandmother's horsemen. <laughs> and uh, at that point, all of the people around break and run. They drop what they're holding. A couple of the guards drop weapons. They toss shields, and they sprint as far and as fast as they can away from that Black Knight. <laughs> he, uh, your father looks out and kind of screws his face up in this just just awful, awful uh, expression. Gives you one last squeeze on the shoulder, and you watch as your mother begins to run like those clods of earth behind her in this nightmare-like slow motion, like she's suddenly trying to run through thickened jelly, and the horseman draws closer with every hoofbeat. She is no longer able to outpace him. You can tell she is not going to make the edge of the wood. Cloak's like holding out his hand. It's like, no, no. You actually put your hand through the barrier and you feel this cold waft by your arm and a whisper in your ear. This strange words that you don't understand, but that, that make your spine turn to ice. And your father takes his hand off your shoulder, takes one deep breath and draws his bow. With tears streaming down his face, he watches as uh, his wife desperately tries to escape this thing, and she looks out at you, and he fires one arrow. You notice in, in that moment that the arrow shaft itself seems to be alive. Somehow, it has little buds, little twigs growing off of it. The arrow fires out and strikes your mother in the stomach. She lets out this, and as the arrow strikes, it it slows down, as if whatever effect is enveloping her takes the arrow with it as well. The arrow buries itself in her gut, and she collapses. In that instant, the horseman pulls up his horse, reins it in, and it begins to snort and prance and tear at the earth, and he starts looking around frantically, as if he can no longer see your mother's body crumpled, not five feet away from him. He clashes his weapon against his, uh, his shield and, uh, and begins to ride the, uh, right up to the edge of the wood, like barreling straight at you. And you snatch your hand back uh, as, he, as he approaches. And he turns suddenly and just rides up and down the edge of the woods, searching. And you're powerless to just watch as your mother tries to slowly crawl her way toward the wood as the sky grows lighter and lighter and lighter. And as the first full rays of the sun peek over the hills, the light strikes the black horseman and he vanishes in black wisps of smoke. Your father drops his bow, tucks his red cap on and runs out into the uh, out into the daylight. He scoops up your mother and, and brings her back inside the safety of the Wormwood. Mom, mom! When she's next to you, you can see that her arm, imagine that her arm had aged a hundred years. Withered, shriveled. Your, your father takes one look at the wound and, and, and kind of sobs, but, but chokes it back. <sighs> he, he strokes your head and says, 
it's time to say goodbye. I don't want to say goodbye. I don't, your uh, your mother weakly smiles with and uh, with just a little trickle of blood at her mouth and reaches up and pats your cheek, and she says, "Listen to your father. Do what he says. I love you. I, I love you too, mom. I don't, I'm, I'm not. I don't. Why? I don't want to. I'm too. I'm too young. No." Your father scoops your mother up as she uh, slumps back against his chest and her eyes close, but you can hear she's still very weakly breathing. Uh, he runs and says, keep up, boy, and uh, sprints back towards your home. You uh, pass absolutely no one on the streets. It seems like absolutely everyone has gone inside, shuttered their windows, barred their doors, and doused every light. The entire city is dead. Forges are quiet. Home fires are snuffed. No one is even peeking out of their homes at this moment because Grandmother's Horseman was here. This is the closest any agent of the Baba Yaga has been to the Wormwood of Nimheim in hundreds of years. So your father rushes down into your workshop, into, into his workshop at the back of your house. He looks at the forge and then takes you to the cellar door nearby and takes you down into the basement. In there, you uh, have been in here once or twice before. You know there's a strange shrine uh, with odd, um, terrifying-looking figures mm -hmm. that you've been able to discern are probably devils from the Eleven Hells. He lays her body on the small altar, and laying over that is a red cloth that is growing with much of that uh, wormwood foliage and uh, acorn sprouts and mushrooms and moss that uh, the red caps uh, the red caps wear he he looks at her and he looks at you and he says there's no way to save her body now but i can ensure that the devils don't have her soul i'm sorry that i have to do this but at least in this way she'll always be with us I know you don't understand, but one day you will. Uh, we can save her, though, right? After a fashion, yes. He turns to the shrine, and he begins to intone in the infernal tongue. You've heard this spoken a few times before when you were nearby one of the sacrifice rituals, one of the monthly observances that ensures that Baba Yaga and her agents won't be able to find your home, won't be able to find you. Won't be able to track down any more of you, and she is searching for every single one of you, body and soul. So your father chants, and he draws out a little, uh, just a, a tiny little knife, like a pocket knife, basically. One that you know that he forged himself. And he, as he chants, he desperately tries to keep his voice steady and not let the sobs break it. Uh, it looks like with all his might, he's just trying to keep his words strong, and he cuts across her throat. As her blood runs down, she lets one last breath out, and you can see a red mist sort of emerge from her mouth with that breath. And it swirls in this, almost like, think, crimson cigarette smoke. These twisting little wisps that gather in a ball above her heart. And for a moment, you see her face in this just peaceful repose, just sort of blow by in the cloud. And then another face with a long pointed nose and these ears that sweep back and leering eyes 
and greedy claws reach out for it, and your father takes the knife, stabs it down through the cloud and into the cloth. The smoke swirls. The two faces blend together and are uh, drawn down through the handle of his knife, past his hand that leaves it stained red as if it were wet with blood, and into the cloth, which begins to just flutter, just faintly around the corners. What's going on? He he uh, he opens his hand, and you can see that that red smear. It's almost like some kind of strange birthmark now on his palm, as well as the back of his hand. He says, "She will now reside within this." And he sort of reverently lifts her body enough to take the cloak out, and he hands it to you. She is here, and she will protect you. You know how the hats work, yes? Yeah. This will work even better. She'll always be with you, and she'll watch over you. She'll protect you, because I'm not going to be here to do that either. Right. And I'm sorry for that, but they're going to come for me. You know that they are. She came back empty-handed. If it wasn't her, better me than you. No, no, they can't take you, too. They're going to take someone. You know it. They're not going to let the kingdom fall. Why can't they take our neighbor, Steve? He pats your shoulder and says, I'm sorry. That's not the way it works. I wish it were different, but it's not. What about Bimbo Butts? I mean, he's a duck. (laughs) Would that we could send him to the altar. (laughs) Yeah. He pulls you close and just kind of lets you blubber and babble and and desperately try to offer other alternatives other than this. Uh, and as he does so, he just draws you out of the workshop, away from your mother's body, and you can feel the cloak as you're kind of clutching at it starts to wrap around you slowly of its own accord. And it just settles over your shoulders. And for a moment, you you take a deep breath and and you can smell her perfume wafting from the moss. This faint scent of of lilacs that she loved so well. Oh, no. And your father draws you away from your home and towards your uncle's house. And he pounds on the door for probably 15 minutes until your uncle finally peeks out of a window to see who it is. And once he realizes it's safe, opens the door for you. He takes one look at you, one look at your father, and your father smiles sadly. Just His eyes are dead. They're just dead. And he shakes his head and says, you're going to have to look after him. And he gives him this look that seems to have more meaning than you're really able to grasp right now. But your uncle, with his, uh, his immaculately coiffed, very thin beard and little pencil mustache and little ringlet curl hair under his, uh, over his pointy ears, uh, nods, and it looks like his eyes are starting to well up, and he says, Come on. Come along, boy. But they can't, Come inside. They can't, t- they can't t- Dad. No, I can't. Uh, I your can't, your no. father no. kneels down turns you around and gives you a huge hug and just crushes you to his chest. No, they can't take you down. It's the way of things. I wish it wasn't. But if they don't take me, they'll take you. 
I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm so sorry. Keep her close, he says, and he sort of draws the cloak around you and uh, strokes your cheek. Make her proud. You have so much more life to live than I do. This is for the best. And he, uh, he, you can tell he's trying not to let his voice quaver, but he uh, kisses your forehead and uh, your uncle kind of grabs a hold of your shoulders and sort of hugs you back to him. And, he sa- and your father says, I'm going to go now. I'm not going to let them come looking. And he sort of uh, puts his hand behind your uncle's head and they kind of touch their foreheads together for a moment. And your father just turns on his heel and runs off. No, Dad! No! Years later, you've grown. You uh, were never allowed to attend that particular ceremony. Your uncle forbade it. You tried to go. Mm -hmm. He ended up having to hold you down. And in fact, the cloak wrapped itself around your wrists and ankles and just straight jacketed you to the floor. Mm-hmm. and wouldn't let you try to run in there and see or stop or interfere with the blood and soul sacrifice of your father that is offered up to the archdevils. Because it has to be done, and in time, Cloak might come to understand that, on some level at least, that if that weren't done, then all of you would fall beneath the blades of the horsemen. The claws and teeth of the Vila, the daughters of Baba Yaga, and maybe even the old grandmother witch herself. Gods forbid. So years pass, and your uncle uh, keeps you in his home, keeps you safe, keeps you fed. And one night, when he is asleep upstairs, you can hear his snoring. It's raucous. You've, uh, you've gotten used to it at this point, but mm-hmm. uh, it never fails to shake the rafters. There's uh, a fire dying in the fireplace down to low embers and the occasional spit of flame when there's someone behind you. The cloak seems to notice it first, and it tugs you. Yeah? You turn around, and there's an individual there in a black cape with a hood and a white mask, featureless, except for faint eye holes. And the way the shadows of the mask fall, you really can't make anything out of the gnome standing in front of you behind that mask. He tilts its head to the side, holds out his hand, his, her, hard to say, their hand. Very, uh, very, just, identity is washed away by this cloak, loose-fitting garment, mask, gloves, the whole nine yards. And there's a whisper that issues from this hollow, porcelain, flat, featureless face. Come with me, and I will see to it that you learn all you need to have your revenge, to protect you, to do what you will. To kill a grandmother. <laughs> the hollow voice laughs. You're an ambitious one. She took everything from me. Perhaps you can find a way. Others have tried. Others have thought they succeeded, and yet she remains. Come with me. I will teach you what we know. Let's get going. All right, so he takes your hand and he leads you to a place where there's a grove out in the woods. Uh, There is a faint little illusionary light wisping about that's just barely illuminating the circle of nine other figures wearing various styles of cloak and clothing and mask. All of them are wearing masks. 
All of the masks are white. Some are stylized to look like leering devils. Some look like... Uh, one looks like a cute badger face. Uh, several are featureless. Uh, and there is a single mask sitting in the center of the circle. None of the figures say or do anything. None of them lift a finger. They just barely turn to look at you. And the figure behind you uh, stops you before you enter the light. He walks forward, picks up the mask, and turns around. And he leans forward and whispers to you, We are the Nameless. Of our number, only I shall know who you are. When we meet, you will wear this. And he holds out the mask to you. I take it and I, I then put on the mask. Okay. Uh, you're, it, it fits uh, surprisingly well and easily mm-hmm. um, and is a little uncomfortable, but uh, you hope in time you'll get used to that. And whenever you speak, your voice becomes strangely hollow as it uh, issues out of the mask. Mm-hmm. And he says, you will never know who I am. They will never know who you are. And this is the way of things. This way we can't be forced to speak. This way we can't be forced to give account. And in this way, we shall discover the path to freedom. And so you're taken in. And once you are masked and cloaked, you're taken in uh, before this group and you learn that the nameless are a society among the gnomes of Nimheim that have to operate in secret because they operate without the consent of the king. The king who seeks to heal the rift, the ancient rift with Baba Yaga, so that you will no longer need to sacrifice blood and souls to the devils every month. Which, on the surface, might sound like a reasonable goal, except he wants to get back into grandmother's good graces. And that seems to rankle every single one of these faceless, nameless individuals arrayed around you. And of course, it sets a fire alight in your heart. And so they teach you. They teach you to move unseen. They teach you to survive off the land. They teach you to hunt your quarry, how to know uh, where it will go to ground, how to anticipate its next move, everything about it. And you begin to learn about everything they know of grandmother and her children and her minions, her demonic and, and fey minions. And you set out to learn what you can knowing that your mother will protect you, wrapped tightly in the cloak around your shoulders. The mask will protect you from reprisals from your, uh, your fellow gnomes of Nimheim. And uh, you walk out of the Wormwood for the first time in your life, out of the protection of the mystical bindings that save you from certain doom. You walk the roads of Midgard, and you find your way to the crossroads. Glass. Hello, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a strange day for you. Uh, you have been selling off your, uh, your wares to the bottle makers, to the alchemists in the markets. You and your mother have, uh, have had a tidy haul. You've had enough uh, coin from this to feed yourself for uh, probably the next week and a half. So, uh, so you'll be able to rest easy for a few days, which is a, a, a welcome respite. Yes. Uh, so you and your mother are counting your coin, and she starts pointing out some of the food vendors that you might stop at for lunch. Oh, can, uh, can we get like? some noodles? I, you know how I like the noodles. This is me young, correct? We have, 
Yes, yes, you're younger. Perhaps a young teenager. And he says, I think that sounds wonderful. Let us, let us go find the best one. And so she draws you on and you uh, have a lovely uh, afternoon picking your way through the market and uh, spending your hard-earned coin more than you've had in months uh, on uh, some delicious, wholesome, tasty food that's going to fill your belly and just warms you from, uh, from the tip of your ears to the, the claws on your toes. And, uh, and so as you're sitting there on this bench uh, overlooking um, uh, kind of a scrubby little garden, but someone made an attempt, that's nice, little park, uh, you start to hear it again. You've heard it every now and then. It's a strange music, almost. Low, somber, deep notes. It reminds you of something you heard in one of the, uh, one of the common houses uh, in the, the nicer areas of town that you've passed through before. You never figured out what that instrument was that produced the sound, but you always thought it was lovely. And now you're hearing it again. You hear it every now and then. Um, sometimes on nights of the full moon, sometimes when you're traveling through the ghost light forest uh, from one place to another, searching for your bits and trinkets. It starts to grow louder, louder than you've ever heard it before. Yeah, I think Glaz is there, and here, you know, in the sort of boardwalks of uh, of the swamps of the dire, the the the, the dire, uh, Felmire. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, his feet sort of dangling off the edge of it, looking at this garden. Attempt at a garden, and uh, sort of cocks his head a little bit, and I think he probably starts to sway. Mm-hmm. A little bit. His mother probably has gotten used to him doing this every once in a while. And his vision just sort of focuses in. And the world sort of just blurs. And he kind of feels himself almost drifting with the music. And he just says, it's, it's, it's louder tonight, but so nice. And the soup and... Noodles. She kind of leans in and she says, are you hearing it again? Yes. Yes, it is. It is loud this evening. Louder than ever. Uh, her brow kind of pinches together a little bit when you say louder than ever. And she says, perhaps, perhaps the matron was correct. Do you think? Maybe. And she smiles and, and passes you another, uh, another roll uh, for you to munch on as you listen to the music. Yeah, kind of gives her a nudge and goes, I I think my special thing will be finding the right mushrooms on the right days. That's my <laughs> well, special. That that's why I'm a special. very special thing. She uh, she kind of pats your cheek. And uh, so as this this strange, kind of deep, beautiful string music is what it sounds like, uh, sort of washes over you. It grows a little bit louder. And now you can hear it most distinctly coming from a direction which you've really never heard quite so strongly before. Occasionally you'd hear the little faint strains of the music drawing you toward uh, the best mushrooms in a patch and away from the the deceptive poisonous ones. But this is altogether new. Mother, it is... It's over there today. Over there? She looks over and you just kind of look down the street. There doesn't seem to be anything 
um, interesting or important there, but as you look, it's almost like someone changes the depth of field on you. Like, without moving, your vision just sort of runs down the street, and the buildings sort of draw back a bit. And the music swells in that moment, and then you kind of come back to your senses. You know, his body, you know, he just sort of, you know, feels it almost as like it's rolling off of his back. And, yes, it is, it's down the street. Back, back the way we came from. The bottle market, maybe? Well, she, uh, she looks down at your lunch and says, well, why don't we follow it? Okay. Uh, it always leads you to the best mushrooms. Maybe it will lead you to something good now, hey? Eh? Ah, maybe fresh, fresh water. That always brings lots of good money here. Yes. Uh, and so he sort of slurps down his soup and uh, gathers, uh, you know, his uh, few things that he has, you know, uh, tools for harvesting. And yeah, you have like a little rusty kind of bent trowel and you know, a little little spade. And yeah. And uh, let's should, let, let's go see. Perhaps more money we could we could get you a new blanket like you need. All right. So uh, you and your mother hop up, and you just and she just sort of lets you lead the way, and you wander down the street, and you get a you get a strange look from people occasionally as you sort of hum a little bit and sway, uh, but to music that they can't hear. Um, but not, nothing, nothing terrible. And uh, as you draw back toward the bottle market, that music does indeed feel like it's drawing you along somehow, almost like the sound is flowing, and you're just sort of drifting along in the current. And he probably is a strange sight. I mean, he hasn't gotten his full growth yet, but as most uh, young troll can are, you know, he is all you know, elbows and ankles and knees and, you know, uh, just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, you know, big feet and big hands. And, you know, probably there's a little bit of him trying to a little bit flow with the music, you know, feeling like he is, but he's kind of gawky and awkward. And there's probably a little bit of tripping that happens and he closes his eyes some to try to follow it more. So he probably looks more like a drunken kid than necessarily someone <laughs> uh, following this flowing, beautiful, you know, you know, music of you know, orchestral type music that he that only he can hear. Um, he once in a while looks over his shoulder to make sure his mom's following him, and sort of gives her a smile that she's encouraging this. She smiles back, and and she kind of tilts her head to the side, and she seems a little little. Uh... Uh, bemused, but uh, but yeah, she follows along right behind you. And, and as you do, you, the the music continues to just by tiny little notches grow a bit louder as you go on. And uh, as you follow your way through the bottle market, and you hear the clink of glass almost seems to harmonize with this with this strange phantom cello music that you're following. And you hear the the calls of merchants and barkers. Uh, it, it almost becomes lyrics to a song somehow. And for a moment, you can just kind of feel how everything in the bottle market is working in this strange, harmonious unison. Uh, from the wealthy merchants uh, poking through, trying to get the very best deals and swindle some people out of some uh, some rare trinket that they have found along the way, to the uh, to the boy trying to pickpocket the uh, <laughs> the 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 vendor on the corner there. Everything seems to be working towards some form of purpose. And I think that there's this weird, almost subconscious thing that starts happening. You know, 
he's never seen an orchestra or conductor, but there's this, as he closes his eyes, there's just sort of these little motions that start to happen with his hands, almost as though he is keeping time with this song that is just, just almost ah, there, that, that, yes. And, you know, it's, he's sort of starting to mumble to himself and subconsciously conducting this music into something. As you move and speak along with this music, with this strange symphony of sound and action and life and commerce that's happening all around you, uh, there is a sudden change in the feeling that's flowing through you. Uh, It suddenly feels electric. Like you're not only hearing the music, you can feel it. You can feel it just sort of thrumming through the the cobblestones under your your worn shoes. You can feel it uh, vibrating your fingertips as you conduct this phantom symphony. And you open your eyes and you see suddenly this strange light pulsing along with the strains of the sound, flowing in this band or ribbon along the street with these little veins sort of pulsing out amongst the stalls. And then there's this crystallizing moment where the light all flashes into one solid color and the music crescendos and your attention is drawn to three individuals in uh, various colored robes. They're uh, standing sort of in a triangle facing one another. Their heads are down. Their their hands are folded in these strange uh, uh, gestures and everyone just sort of gasps and they're all looking down at the ground and you realize that your mother is staring at the light too. The three look up as one and look at you. And it, I think, you know, as he sees the light, he kind of puts his hands out. You know, he was sort of doing this weird. And then it just sort of, you know, does this kind of motion and sees the light. And then kind of looks up in this gangly trollkin. When you put your, your hands down at the light, there's a sudden ripple through the ground. The cobblestones, it's like someone took the street and snapped it. And everyone around you sort of gasps and, and, and looks around like, whoa, what the hell just happened? And the, the three individuals in robes just all tilt their head at the same time and start walking forward. Uh, 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 your mother is has her hands pressed to her mouth, as clearly she just saw that too. And she says, Glass, Glass, are you all right? Yes, it was... It was, it was beautiful. Did you, did you, you're you're okay? That didn't hurt you? I'm not even sure if it was me, but it was. uh... So at that moment, she notices the three uh, figures approaching you and uh, you kind of have your attention drawn back to them as well. I just, I kind of look up and I assume again, he's probably about their height, unless they're super tall, even though he's still sort of just an oh, adolescent no, pro- Yeah, probably kid. about their height. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of looks up at them and seeing these very well-dressed people, um, which in general in uh, his life up to this point has meant either he was in trouble or he was amongst his betters and probably should not be seen. Um, and that they're paying so much. He, and after this has just happened, he's just, I, I can explain. I'm so sorry. I don't. I do not know. It was. I was just. I'm. Uh, I'm. And kind of folds his arms and. Uh, Hello. I am. I am Glass. Uh, glass. I shouldn't. But you can call me Glass. Everyone calls me Glass. And just kind of very nervously, just tries to do something sure. to 
feel I'm mm. yeah, yes. So uh, the three approach you. One of them is uh, a human. The other is uh, something with some sort of fiendish blood. Uh, you've seen them before. You really don't know terribly much about them, but he has uh, these horns swept back in front of his uh, from from the front of his forehead, and there's this faint smell of uh, of brimstone about him, and his skin has sort of a purplish red tinge, and his uh, his eyes are black, and he smiles and seems I don't know. It's half creepy, half inviting. It's very strange. Uh, the other one, at first glance, looks human, and then you notice just a very slight point to the ears and a very delicate cast to the features. You realize this person is, in fact, elf-marked. So this is perhaps once, uh, once, a, once a person who earned the favor of the elves or perhaps uh, whose family line carries some, some blessing of the, uh, the lost elves. And the human in front bows his head, both to you and your mother, and he says, Good afternoon. My name is Malkut Ebenstaff. He he doesn't know what to do, so he just kind of, I, I think he does like goes to bow, and then he, the only thing that he's ever seen people do is his mom one time curtsied. So then he kind of like curtsies, and he's like, uh, <laughs> and she kind of says, no, 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 no. just <laughs> she kind of stops you from doing that. And says, no, it's fine. And he uh, so he smiles a bit and says, "What is your name?" Uh, I, I'm Glass. Uh, it is nice to meet you. Uh, Hello. Glass. I am surprised and delighted to make your acquaintance today. And you are, and he looks, uh, he looks to your mother and she, uh, she kind of, uh, oh yeah, yes, this is, this is my son. Um, and he, he bows even a little bit lower to her and says, madam, I wonder if I might beg a few moments of yours and your son's time. It seems we have a very important proposition to put forward to you. And so thus begins a very strange conversation of which Glaz understands very little, but uh, the three who come to tell you that they are wizards from the city of Bemia, which of course you have heard of, uh, you've never been to because it's out in the, you know, out in the middle of the ocean. And uh, as far as you know, only wizards can go there. They can, only they can open the way. Uh, they explain to you that what you heard and what you saw is incredibly rare and marks you as very special and if you and your mother would like they can take you to one of the colleges in Bemia and teach you to learn more about this and over the over the course of this discussion it becomes clear that they explain to you that no no you are touched and possess the capacity to manipulate and control the forces of magic if you wish, with study and dedication, you can become a wizard. Uh, your mother claps her hands to her mouth and just sort of looks at you. It's funny, he does almost the exact same expression, having seen her before, just... And I look to her, and I look to them, and I basically just... So, the, that music, that is... that is magic. That is a very special kind of magic. You see, all across the face of the world, there are rivers of magic if one knows where to look and if one is gifted enough to see it or apparently in your case, hear it. If you wish, you can learn to tap into this magic, to draw it, bend it to your will. To, to play music. Yes, amongst nearly anything else you can imagine. I look to my 
mother. Uh, she looks equal parts scared and excited. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, you know, he's, again, probably about her same height as well. Her human features, you know, very different from his own and his, you know, sort of tusks from his trollkin nature and the mm-hmm. uh, his long ears. And he kind of smiles at her and goes, maybe, maybe the matron was right. I think she was. Do you want to do this? Well, I don't necessarily want to leave, but mother, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. It calls to me. I think it's always called to me. She, uh, her, her eyes well up a little bit, but she smiles and she says, then I think you should go with them. I look to them and go, I know Bimi is a very special place and it's not close by, but will I be able to at least visit every once in a while to come back? The, uh, the elf-marked individual uh, chuckles softly and says, but of course, you will have much study. It will occupy a great deal of your time, but it is not a prison. Of course you can come visit. And a big, toothy grin. And uh, <laughs> he kind of laughs and goes, well, <laughs> I do know the best place to come and find my potions when I need them, I guess. Right, Mom? She she laughs and a, a tear rolls down her cheek and she says, yes, yes, soon you'll be making the best potions. I, 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 maybe. I, don't, I, I, I guess we will see. As you say, who knows what the next dawn will bring. And he just gives her a big hug. She hugs you back and uh, she, you know, uh, gathers up as much of your things as you have. Uh, basically, the wizards say, no, no, that's not necessary. Everything you need will be provided to you unless you have some... Uh, some personal effects you wish to, to take, some personal mementos. I think just uh, probably, um, you know, in their in their travels, he has probably one or two little trinkets that uh, that he mm-hmm. has. Uh, they wear. Uh, in fact, your mother takes off a bracelet. It's just kind of a simple cord with a little like rough agate, and uh, it's one that you found the first time you heard the music and found uh, a, a mushroom patch. And she, you, you pick that up amongst them, and she presses it on your wrist and says, "Here, take this." And I almost do. I do the same thing. I have a little necklace that has a that was a shell that just sort of you know has a you know maybe you know a little shiny shell, and I take it off and I put it on her, and I go, "Keep watch over everyone. Make sure they are. Make sure they find the the best mushrooms." <laughs> I'll try to remember what you taught me. Uh, yes. And so uh, you say your goodbyes. She hugs you tight and kisses your face. And uh, the mages whisk you away. And you are taken to the city of Bemia, which is unlike anything you have ever seen before. And as soon as you step foot in it, you just hear music. It takes you a while to get used to it and drown it out. Every street, every alley, every building, archway, spire, all of it seems to gather and amplify this music that you can hear. And you learn over the course of your studies that Bemia is an artificial anchor for two of the most powerful ley lines in all of Midgard. And you see a map of the city, and it is essentially a giant anchoring glyph built into the the buildings and streets. And I'll offer this up to the, the stream there. This is the city of Bemia. So you can see that is the layout of the streets and the buildings, and the entire place is just built to channel and uh, magnify and manipulate magic. 
So you begin your studies. It's very difficult at first. You've never had formal education before, and you're kicked in at kind of a, an advanced level. And at first, you end up struggling hard. And uh, you have some fellow students who take great pains to remind you that you're struggling hard. Um, but that manages to uh, basically just bolster your resolve and uh, causes you to double down on your studies. And you make swift, swift progress. And then one night, after you're looking over uh, the collections from your recent fieldwork, where you went and uh, worked on an archaeological dig, digging up ancient artifacts of the empire that once sunk into the sea here, the first great human empire on Midgard, you hear that sound again. A swell of music, but this time tempered with something else. The strange drumbeat pulling at you. And it wakes you out of your, uh, your doze where you were falling asleep on your, on your textbooks. He wakes up and uh, immediately recognizing that this is something different. And just as last time that a new sound has led him places and... He gets up and just, there's something new, and gathers his things together and just begins to start listening and almost letting the music take him. And again, probably now uh, it's been years. He's sort of got his full growth and probably is a strange sight to see it almost seven feet tall, uh, the only Trollkin uh, in Bimia. He begins... Still not the most graceful thing in the world, but he's closing his eyes and sort of is following along. Where are you coming from? Where? So you walk the city streets at night, and it's mostly quiet, although there are some parts of the street that come alive at night. For whatever reason, certain stores only sell their wares after dark. Very strange. Many strange customs and even laws in Bemia, but you get used to it. You follow the music, and when you look up, you realize you are in the dead center of the city. And you're looking down at this intricate tile mosaic that covers this open square. And uh, you've, you've seen it many times. You've studied it. You've, you've copied drawings of it. You've taken you know rubbings of the, the tiles. And you can easily recount and visualize various sections of it. And you know that it's called the labyrinth. It's a great twisting path of color in the very center of the city. And you know that it is said that's, that wonderful things can happen if one knows the proper paths to walk and take along the labyrinth. And you can feel the music thrumming beneath your feet, and you can hear the glass tiles sort of reverberating with the song of the ley lines. So Glass just closes his eyes and begins to conduct or feel the music and then puts his hands down and just without what without his eyes open lets the music take him into the labyrinth all right so he just walks and you walk a twisting strange path that if you were hard pressed if your life depended on it you probably couldn't recreate it outside of that sort of almost trance state that you've entered into. And as you walk, the music grows louder and you can smell almost this electric charge filling the air. And you can feel this energy thrumming through your feet and crackling off your fingertips. And occasionally as you do your little conduction, uh, conductive mo movements, you can feel bolts of energy 
energy and even see flashes of light behind your eyelids, passing from hand to hand. You continue to walk this strange path that this drumming and this cello music that you hear is drawing you along. And as you do, you start to feel strange and disoriented, almost like half of your body is taller or longer than the other. And then, uh, and then that's gone. And then for a moment, you're ice cold and then feverish hot and break out into sweat. And then your footsteps crunch, not on glass tile, but on gravel or twigs or dead leaves. And you tilt your head to the side and the song of the ley lines is all but gone. You can hear something. It's faint. It's distant. But it's not the same. It sounds more like a a reedy woodwind off in the distance. He opens his eyes. You open your eyes and you're standing in a dark forest glade. You're looking at the trunk of a tree that you would almost guess is an oak tree, except it sort of twists, almost like taffy, in the middle, and the branches are sort of leaning towards you with these grayish and black leaves. And you look around and there's all manner of of similar trees like that, just thick and dense, and up above you is a roiling charcoal gray sky, just a smear. No moon, no stars. Yeah, from Glass's studies... The Shadow Realm. Oh, this is not good. Yes. Yes, you recognize it immediately. And your blood begins to run cold. And in that moment, you feel something cold tap under your chin. And you look, and you see a dull gleam of metal coming from the blade of a sword. And holding it is a very delicate hand with nails like cat claws. Black-clad armor. Uh, uh, hello? I'm, I'm, I'm lost, and I did not mean to intrude or come to this place unintentionally. I am just trying. I was following the... Do you hear the music? This is not good. Um, if you, um, uh... And just sort of starts to stutter and stammer as he looks down. Right. And so there we will, we will cut away from Glaz. Kari, you're running through the woods. Your bare feet are snapping on twigs and uh, occasionally catching on roots, but you've got great balance. It doesn't really stumble you up very much. You, you catch yourself if you have to dig your fingertips into the loam and then just kind of drive yourself forward again. And uh, as the cold air whistles through your hair and you pull it through your nose into your lungs running through this strange, gloomy, dappled glade, uh, you've never felt happier. And you look down and you kind of of run to a stop and uh, you look at sort of your bramble-torn leggings and uh, the dirt and mud uh, stuck between your toes and you just sort of giggle for a moment and and then you look around the forest where you you find yourself. And how do you feel in that moment? I just feel the rush and the sensation of being alone. I'd often find myself running away from my family or from Hunt's Reach just so I can feel the call of the wild. Right. And so in that moment, you take a deep breath and you open your eyes and you sort of snap back to yourself where you are now. Your armor's weighing a little heavily on your shoulders, but it's a nice night. Most of them are nice. 
and you uh, you allow yourself that moment of remembering when you used to run through the woods as a child, back before you had any of your training, back before you uh, before you took up your posts at Hunt's Retreat, before you trained with the forest hunters for a while at the Sable Court, uh, and you just smile, remembering those days. and And it feels good to know that even now, with everything else, uh, there's still a little bit of that with you, and you set off into the woods again. And uh, you've been out here for perhaps a few days, living off the land, striking out into the forest of the Firebirds, not really searching for anything in particular. You thought perhaps if you could find one of the steel-winged, swan-like Ayala, you might be able to trap it, and maybe uh, you've heard that the Queen of Night and Magic enjoys these birds. And perhaps if you could present one to the court as a gift, they might uh, look kindly upon that. But they're also said to breathe fire and that the the steel feathers of their wings are razor sharp. So maybe you're not looking too terribly hard just yet. It's a nice fantasy, though. It is. It's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice idea. Uh, as you make your way through the woods, you, uh, you have the reassuring tug of your, your bowstring slung over your shoulder and the, uh, the soft clatter of your sword against your hip. Uh, you stop as suddenly the back of your neck prickles. You look around, and you know it. You're being watched. Just instinctually. It's just somewhere you know it. Since it's dark, I attempt to use my ability to misty step uh, away as Shadowfay can and try and hide myself again. Okay, you uh, you step into the shadow of one of the trees and you whiff, whisk yourself through the stuff of darkness into a nearby shadow. And you have a good vantage point, actually up into the crook of a tree. And you have a good vantage point crouching there uh, to see the clearing where you, were, where you were running through and looking for whatever it is that, uh, that prickled your intuition, that, that tickled your senses. And for a moment, you think maybe it was your imagination, but then you see a dark shape move off in the trees. You watch, and it's just sort of there for a moment and then gone, but you think you have a a gauge of the direction it was moving. Can I attempt to move through the trees, kind of over top of it, kind of Avatar style? Yeah, the canopy is dense enough here that you can kind of brachiate. You can kind of go from one branch to the next. It's not super fast, but you don't need to be. Uh, and you can do it relatively quietly, given the, the dense canopy here. So you start to make your way among these thick, twisted tree branches. Uh, occasionally, one of them seems to, like, pluck at your boot, but you just sort of kick it aside. And uh, following along the direction where you saw this shadow go, you see a, a bit of, like, a... a scratch or a tear in the ground where something tore at the loam or, uh, or disturbed the, uh, the, the leaf litter. Would I recognize the tracks at all or at least get a gauge of how large the creature was? Uh, yeah, if you get a little bit closer, you can check it out. Okay, I will try to, as silently as I can, swing down staying close to the trunk of a tree instead of just like superhero jumping off. Right, right. So you slink down the, the tree trunk and, uh, and creep your way out toward the, uh, toward the mark. And you look at it, and there's a, there's a print nearby, and then there's that mark. And gauging between the print and then this claw mark that doesn't quite match it, it's some kind of large cat. 
I take a look around to see if I'm being stalked right now, still. Uh, that's a good instinct, because as you whip around in the direction you saw it moving from, there is a twin pinpoint bluish-white gleam in the brush. I crouch down and I move my hand towards my sword, but I don't really try to make a run for it. All right. So knowing that a lot of these creatures, their instinct is to chase. And if you turn your back on them and try to run, they'll pounce on you. And if they drive you to the ground, you're as good as dead. You you stand your ground, maybe shift back just a little bit and uh, move your hand to your weapon. As you do, the eyes swing over toward to look at your hand and then back up at you. And the creature takes one soft step forward and a massive black furred cat. Essentially, uh, yeah, think of it like a giant panther. And its, its fur seems to just absorb any moat of the, the dim light that, that fills the twilight gloom of the Shadow Realm. And it steps without so much as a whisper. You're not even sure how you managed to notice its presence before, given how carefully and stealthily it moves. And it sort of lifts its head, and its ears are laid back, but then they kind of prick forward towards you. I'm... Um would say not overly familiar with the language of animals, but familiar enough to know that it's, if it could strike, it probably would. And I'd go to test the theory and I move my hand slowly away from my blade, keeping my palms outstretched. As you move your hand away from your sword, it darts forward about half of its body length, which brings it uncomfortably close to you. Its ears lay back and it growls. I growl back at it right away as soon as it comes close to me. As soon as you growl and sort of threaten and reach back for your weapon, it takes a step back. I really do not want to go head to head with this thing, and I, <laughs> I just kind of mimic its actions, trying to make myself a little bit bigger and growling and taking tenacious steps towards it. All right, so as you start to, it sort of uh, bunches itself backward onto its hind feet. Its tail lashes twice and then goes still, and it crouches low, locks its eyes with you, and gives this sort of horrible great cat hunting cry and lunges at you just throws itself across the clearing. What do you do? Oh, man, I'm going to try and just step out of the way and turn so I can get behind it, uh, and I will draw my sword as I do so. So, ah. Okay, so you're trying to sort of, yeah, you, as you defend and draw, you pull the blade out, and you realize as you're drawing, you have a perfect strike at its underbelly. It seems... That is the way of nature, to kill or be killed. And yet something in my heart tells me to hesitate and I move aside. As soon as you hesitate, it twists almost impossibly in the air and rakes a claw across your face. Boof! And sort of knocks you down to one knee and lands in the dirt and stares at you again. All right. Let's do this. And it bears its yellowed fangs and lunges again, and you can see this blue light gleaming in its eyes. And its jaws are driving right for your throat. There's no longer any holding back for Kari, and she is fully engaged in every way that she can be going now for the kill. 
So as this thing lunges forward, you can see it's going for your throat. So you drop low, drive the short sword up into its chest. It lets out this yowl of pain and just bursts into these shards of shadow and is gone. But then you hear this breeze sort of blows through and rattles all of the trees and you hear, good. Looking around. So as soon as that happens, um, it, you, you have this feeling sort of settle over you like this triumphant, this exultant feeling, but also a feeling of this presence that almost fills you. And it is wonderful. It feels like, it feels like you're not alone. And I feel the surge of energy and I let it flow through my veins and just like it, let it enrapture me like a drug in and of itself. The feel of the hunt completely taking me over, making me near bloodthirsty. All right. And uh, and as you do, you catch scent of an animal on the wind. <laughs> I head off in the direction now, giving uh, to my baser urges the need for the hunt, the need to chase, the need to go on. As soon as you, as soon as you set off in search of uh, whatever creature is out there in the woods, that exultant feeling starts to flow through you again, but in a very directed, sort of channeled way that seems to be driving you on farther into the woods. And you will spend probably the next three days just completely consumed with the hunt, tracking your prey, killing it, eating it, you know, tanning its hides, uh, making shelters out of the remains if you can, you know, uh, making using the bones and hides to make shelters, living off of the land just fully. And you have never been more at home when you are out in the wilderness on your uh, on your little training exercises like this. And as the days roll on, that feeling of not being alone stays with you. I try at different points throughout the different camps of the night to try communicating or calling out or seeing if I can see something like the cat hunting me. I try to never sleep on the ground at that point, always up in the trees if I can help it. I don't feel alone, so I'm going to trust my instinct on that. Right, and and that feeling of not being alone, it's not that sort of oppressive someone's watching you. It's this, it's this comforting, it feels like there's a partner at your back sort of deal. And it's, uh, it's strange, you're not sure where it's coming from, but it very much uh, uh, just, uh, it, it just, it just feels right. Um, and so you spend several days, you know, practicing your hunt, and uh, eventually it comes time that you really need to head back <laughs> towards, uh, towards Hunt's Retreat or some other uh, vestige of civilization. And even as you do, you still carry that feeling with you. Like you're not leaving anything behind anymore, as you sometimes felt whenever you'd have to tear yourself away from the woods and head back to uh, see to your duties. It's still painful to leave the forest. Uh, the closer I get to civilization, the kind of slower my running becomes, the heavier my feet fall. Lifted by the fact that I'm no longer alone in my travels, that there is something in me that is connected to the rest of the world around me. 
But I still sing a song of lament as I get closer. Okay. Uh, as you move through the woods and you make your way toward, uh, toward Hunt's, Hunt's retreat, you feel, you feel almost drawn to it. Uh, in a way that you really never have before. It's it's always felt like, like you said, like a lament when you had to come here. But something's different now. And uh, you're having trouble putting your finger on it. But you can hear, uh, you can hear sounds uh, sort of echoing through the forest as you get closer and closer to the lodge. You can hear uh, voices raised, and they sound jubilant. Sound the sounds. Is of the Dark Prince here? I pick up my pace. Your, your pace quickens and you head in and you see a great number of, uh, of, of shadow face steeds uh, being drawn into the small stable at the back of uh, at Hunt's Retreat. And you can see that there are fires built in the, uh, the sort of the bond, the lawn area surrounding it. And you can see pavilions being set up as well as some uh, supplies being brought into the lodge. And you see the black pennant of, of the Black Prince. Yes. Yes, indeed you oh, do. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, I am still fairly uncouth as Shadow Fago, <laughs> so I I slink around uh, the outskirts of the parties as I want to do and try to pick up bits and pieces of conversation and be a part of the merriment without so much really being a part of it. Sure. Uh, so you're, ev- you're able to pick up very quickly and easily. I mean, you, you don't have to... Uh, you don't have to slink around terribly much. Uh, you're more than welcome here. This is your place. Uh, no one gives you a second glance. You get a few, you know, polite nods of greeting when people notice you. Uh, you very quickly pick up that the prince has been out on a short hunt and has been successful. And so they are setting up their camp to celebrate and to divide and share the hunt's spoils. And, uh, you, you know, you likely have come back not empty handed yourself since you've been out hunting for days. You, uh, probably have some, uh, some fresh kill that you were planning to eat for the next few days. I would have taken it back to, um, my family's kind of small lodgings and set it up there and maybe talked to them and said, how long has the prince been here and getting little bits of information. Oh yeah. Uh, Okay, so nearby, there is um, a strange individual. Uh, you've seen a few of them before, sometimes in the, the employ of the prince, sometimes in service to other Shadow Fae nobility. It's um, a, uh, a young man, and he's wearing a, a black velvet tabard with the prince's uh, livery on it, and he has a sword belted at his hip, and he has just, he's very pale. His, his uh, hair is almost like ghostly blonde, and he seems to be a mortal, a human. Which is maybe a little strange, but you've seen some of these servant types before, uh, and you know that they're referred to as dream squires. And he uh, turns towards you and bows very low, and he says in a very level, even voice, Mistress, how may I be of service to you? Forgive me, it is not often that I see your kind. You are a curiosity to me. Yes, I understand that there are fewer of myself now than there have been in the past. And he sort of weakly smiles and then it just sort of fades away. 
I do my best to smile back at him and not have it be eerie, but my intentions are not to make him feel uncomfortable, so I, I bow back. He doesn't look uncomfortable at all. He looks perfectly attentive to you, your presence, and, uh, and anything you might have to say. Are you here for the hunt? Yes, we have returned from the hunt. The Black Prince has been successful. That is wonderful. Three boars. Three boars fell before his spear and arrows. That is most impressive. I had... I see that you have brought kill. Yes. And some other unusual experiences along the way. Hmm. That does tend to happen in the forest, one understands. If you would like, you can bring your kill to share. And he sort of gestures toward the camp that's being set up. I would very much enjoy that. And she would take her kills kind of slung over her shoulder in casual fashion and uh, walk up to him. So the uh, the squire offers to take it from you? I hand it over. So he takes it and he, he sort of uh, waits and just follows along next to you toward the uh, toward where the, uh, the, the kills are being dressed out. And so, yeah, he uh, he just takes you in there and he begins to uh, to essentially if you ask him for any assistance, he sees to your needs. He will begin dressing your uh, your deer if you if you wish him to. And he basically just kind of buttles around handling whatever you need as you just sort of get swept up in all of the, the festivities happening here at the prep. Uh, you see a few of the other Shadow Fae who are very clearly from the courts themselves. You can tell they, you know, they, they almost play act putting on their hunting clothes and their, their armor and such. Um, but they have just a, a flavor about them that's just off. So they kind of smile at you like, yes, hello, fellow hunter. And you kind of, mm, there's a little pang of disdain for them. Yeah, I, I just give a curt nod of my head uh, or uh anything to defer to their station but they do they are glamorous Takari. sure uh so uh, after not very much longer at all the fires are roaring uh animals are spitted and begin roasting on the flames and you can smell just this marvelous aroma coming off of the various boars and deer and rabbits that were uh, that were caught in the wood and uh music and wine and merriment begins and there is some dancing and singing and tales are being told and you can see the black prince himself is seated seated in a uh, a chair near one of the larger fire pits and he's leaning back listening to a story and it looks like he's enjoying himself i try to get a little bit closer <laughs> sure uh so you kind of uh sidle up and uh as you do a horn sounds in the distance and then the braying of hounds and the music sort of dies down a little bit and the black prince sits up and looks off toward the, the wood where the sound came from. After a few moments, that baying of hounds grows louder and louder, and you can hear thunderous horf be uh, hoofbeats and the sound of people running through the brush. A figure very soon bursts through the tree line, riding a magnificent horse that seems almost greenish and spectral, like you can see through it, and it leaves this wispy trail behind it. He's wearing tanned hides and leathers. He has a, a crown of antlers that bursts up from his forehead, and a sort of greenish glow fills from his eyes and obscures the features on his face. And he has a spear raised high in one hand that has luminous green vines curling around it, 
and he charges through the clearing and uh, Shadowface scatter to get out of his way and he pulls up his horse and it rears and just sort of uh, uh, whinnies out this bizarre echoing cry that almost sounds like a horse but not quite that that ain't a normal horse and he uh he sets the steed back down and settles into its uh, into its saddle and looks at the black prince and the black prince stands and bows his head respectfully every other shadow fay bows at the waist like eyes to the ground i do as well because that's the lord of the hunt yes yes it is he uh he nods his head toward the prince and just sort of ignores everyone else and he trots his horse forward a bit and he takes a um a string of rabbits off of the uh the tie on his saddle and he looks toward a tree next to it there's this hollow in its trunk and it looks like there's some kind of something uh laid out there like maybe there's a shelf or um or a, uh, a, a kind of a floor in this hollowed trunk that's sort of bowed out from the tree. He, uh, he bows his head slightly to it, tosses the rabbits onto it, wheels his horse, and charges off back into the woods. I turn my eyes to the Black Prince to see if he is going to make a motion over towards that tree trunk. Uh, he sort of looks at it kind of nods and then just sort of goes back to his business. And uh, the the rest of the Shadow Fae around, this is, I mean, they're just a buzz with what just happened. And so they're tittering and gossiping and talking about who the Lord of the Hunt looked at and... <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, a dramatic eye roll is very much so Kari as well. And she goes over to the tree trunk, um, Surprised that the Black Prince either didn't notice or was too enamored of the Lord of the Hunt is how she's going to ration it out and is going to head over to that string of rabbits. Okay, so the tree, it looks like it's been hollowed out at its base or maybe it strangely grew that way somehow, except it looks too uh, deliberate. Maybe someone carved and polished it. There is a slightly um, bowed, almost like an altar, set up there that the rabbits are thrown onto and the wood is thickly stained with old blood and there is a symbol carved into the back on the inside of the tree and it looks like a spear point and as you look at that it almost glows blue and sort of jumps out at you and you feel this visceral connection to it I reach out a hand and just kind of touch along it gently Okay, so as you touch it, this uh, this sort of cold shock runs up your arm, and you hear that whispering voice when you struck at the Great Panther, when you slew it. You hear that voice just sort of whisper, Welcome home. And you, whatever that presence, that feeling in you is, you just, you have this connection to this altar and this symbol. And so, after making this discovery and uh, learning that she has this connection, Kari very quickly comes to realize that she has been chosen by the hunter. And she very quickly, after that, comes to realize that with that comes power, as well as expectation, which she meets eagerly, because the hunter wants her to hunt. He wants her to kill. He wants her to find prey and spill its blood. She wants her to live off its meat she wants her to make utensils from their bones and horns, to take trophies, to be the best predator that she can. 
and that, in doing so, glorifies him. And in return, he grants you a measure of his power. And over time, that divine connection grows, and you realize that you can whisper a prayer or a desire to him, and he will grant it. You can mend your wounds, you can strike down your enemies, you can uh, forge, you can borrow his claws to strike down your enemies if you need. I spend many days in hunt in honor of that after uh, I first discovered these powers and the altar and I let the cacophony of the festivities, they, they don't mean anything to me at this point. The, the jubilant parties and everything that Kari had so previously got wrapped up in, she really feels the pull to her true calling to be out there in the wild again. All right. And so time will pass and she will grow more confident in her understanding of the entity that she now knows is the hunter. This dark god of bloodshed and predators and the death of prey. And she meets other worshippers of him uh, among the hunters of the Shadow Fae and uh, among just other adherents. And some of them take it to a pretty ridiculous extreme, a, a point that she might see as excessive and wasteful. Uh, that is one thing that Kari is not, is wasteful. Uh, there's no point in killing just to kill. And so some of these more zealous uh, devotees of the hunter might put her off and she may uh, issue some of their company. Uh, once she realizes how bloodthirsty some of these people are. Because they start to see everything and everyone as prey. But over time, uh, she grows much more comfortable with this connection and this presence, this ever-present presence that now you know is the hunter just sort of always with you. And one night, you are out uh, in the woods on one of your excursions, sleeping in a tree so easily as you do, your, uh, your newly acquired uh, face spirit familiar curled up at your side, warm against your hip. You drift off to sleep. And you find yourself somewhere else. Somewhere you've never seen before. You look down at the ground and it's gray and rocky. And there are strange rents, large fissures in the ground and foul-smelling tar or, or some kind of substance seems to seep up out of the earth and just belch this terrible stench into the area. You look around, and the sky is bright, piercingly bright and stabbing at your eyes, even though there are thick clouds and what seem to be swirling storms of ash and dust. But this is very much not your home because the sun is burning up above there, trying to stab through the ashes and, uh, and, and strike at you. And you, you look around, trying to get your bearings, and you realize that this place feels dead. You're so normally in tune with these, uh, the, the natural wilds that this place just tastes rotten. It smells foul. And you look around, and your skin begins to prickle into goose flesh, just feeling how dead this land is. You don't see a single plant, you don't see a single animal, not a bird, not a beast. And then you hear a great rumbling impact. You spin around and you find yourself staring up 
at some sort of thing that has just taken a step. It stretches up into the sky and blots out what would be the sun. It is vaguely humanoid in shape, but you find yourself having difficulty really focusing in on its details. It stands there in the wake and the aftershocks of this massive step it took, and you can see what look like massive chains sunk into its back and draping back into the land, and uh, what look like large almost sleds or skiffs with uh, huts on them being dragged behind this immense creature, and lumberously it takes another step. And the foot just sort of slowly sweeps and then drives itself down into the dead ground. And it, as it goes, those chains drag this strange village behind this creature. Protruding from its back are these misshapen bat wings and its uh, limbs gnarl and twist. And its face is this sprouting mass of what looks like tentacles of rotting gray flesh and as you look at it you kind of flinch away it's almost like its very presence stabs at your soul this whole situation is just vile there is nothing natural about this why wouldn't you just kill the beast instead of putting it through this awful subservience i i don't understand well whatever it is it's hundreds of feet tall and uh, as you watch, there's this swirl of nasty dust and mist that kicks up around you in this wind out of nowhere. And, and the next thing you find yourself in a different place, uh, standing atop another creature that sort of reminds you of that in some ways, certainly in its stature, in the immense feeling of its wrongness, that the world itself is trying desperately to reject this thing, but can't. And now you're standing on top of it, and your feet are beginning to almost feeling like they blister trying to get away from this thing. And you see in front of you, standing on the creature, perhaps 20 feet away with you, is a figure in a fluttering, like, dirty gray linen robe. And in one hand, you can see these scarified glyphs. And around each glyph, the skin is black and puckered, almost like these things are rotting into its flesh. It cocks its head to the side, almost like it heard you or was aware of your presence for the moment. And this kind of, uh, like a headscarf covering the back of it just flutters in the wind, but it doesn't turn around. It turns its back to you again reaches in front of it and draws out this massive black dagger that seems to have almost a, a cruciform blade, like it's two dagger blades stuck together, making a, a, like a plus if you looked at it straight on. And it drives this dagger into the creature's chest and starts sawing a hole in it. And this sound, this bass rumble from this strange otherworldly thing that you're standing on just rips out and causes earthquakes, mountains to crumble in the distance. You can see flames and lava boil up out of the earth as this figure starts carving into its chest and rips out what is a dripping black, massive, probably uh, tiny based on the size of this creature's body, but massive compared to the, to the person ripping it out, crystalline black heart 
and the figure throws its head back in triumph and howls in some language that you don't understand, but you hope to all the gods that you never hear again. As he speaks or screams, your lip splits, blood pours out of your nose, and it feels like you were punched in the stomach just from hearing this word. And the heart begins to shrink down to about the size of a human heart. And then everything goes black. And you start awake in your tree perch. <gasps> and you go up and you, you touch your hand to your lip and you pull away blood. <sighs> I wipe away the blood and I try to commit to memory what I had just seen, thinking that I should share this with my people. Okay, so as you, you desperately try to recall these details, the edges of them start to slip away, as so often happens when you wake from a dream. Certain things, though, are burned into your memory. The look of those massive silhouettes, those creatures, the one lumbering across the land and the other dying beneath this strange knife. The look of those scarred images in the creature's arm and the sound of that word that it screamed into the dying sky. You're not sure that you'll ever be able to forget the sound of that word. But couldn't remember the word at all. Yeah. You try, and it's almost like it nauseates you trying to recall the exact sounds of it. So maybe you could with time, or maybe you could try to write down roughly what it sounded like. Um, something along those lines. Uh, right but trying now, in this very not, moment, you're, you're, yeah. you're incredibly shook. You're incredibly shook, yeah. Uh, your, your familiar, it's, uh, your familiar is up on her, uh, his, sorry, on his toes. His tail is puffed out and he's kind of arched up like he's, you know, threat displaying, trying to make himself bigger. And that's when you see a flash of light. This like sudden, swift, bluish white, almost like a beam across your vision in the forest. I will go along um, the edges of whatever consumable trail or road and uh, head up to see what this flash of light is, thinking that it must be tied to what I've just experienced. All right, so uh, suddenly very thankful to have something to pull your mind out of that horrific nightmare and into reality, the moment, the air and the, the soil and the trees around you. Um... So you are very certain that what you just experienced was some sort of manifestation of a road, a shadow road, but that one isn't, doesn't look or feel like any of them you've ever seen before. And certainly there isn't one that runs through this area. You're, you're positive of that. So that's very strange. I'm going to climb up the trees then, uh, and walk, if there is enough foliage to go through the tops. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a very dense part of the forest. Yep. So you can see up ahead, kind of shining through the leaves, this sort of pulsing bluish-white glow that gets dimmer with every pulse. And uh, so you start brachiating through the branches and uh, swinging from tree to tree as you can, occasionally dropping down to the ground, uh, and you come upon a clearing. And in the center of this clearing, kind of stumbling near to one of the trees, is a figure uh, unlike any you've ever seen before. He's very tall. He's not human. He's certainly no, not one of the fae. Uh, or maybe he is. There's something about him that seems very familiar, 
even if you don't immediately recognize his form. He has great pointed ears, and his skin is covered in these thick stone-like knobs. And he's wearing um, what would almost look like uh, like a toga, but made out of an animal skin tossed over his shoulder. And you can see that there's like writing on the on the hide. And he's he's looking around, and he's sort of muttering to himself. And uh, I think he might take off some spectacles and nervously clean the lenses off. <laughs> and he's like, he kind of counts on his fingers a little bit and he starts trying to like trace lines through the air. He seems very confused, but uh, you know, you're still a little shook from that dream. So you're not interested in taking any chances. So you creep up behind him and get him at sword point, tap your sword right under his chin. And he turns around and he starts babbling at you. He's speaking common, <laughs> which you have learned well enough, uh, but you're really not sure. He doesn't seem to be any kind of threat. That's nice. And you get the feeling that there is some sort of familiarity there with him. What are you doing here? Hello. I do not know what I am doing here. Uh, I, I, I was just in Bimia, and... Now I believe I am in the Shadow Realm, correct? You have found yourself here. You did not intend to come? Uh, no, I did not. I I just followed the, the ley line, the, the Shadow Road. It called to me to bring me here. It is very strange. I hear it like music. Yes, I hear it like music. And sometimes things... Ugh, sometimes things. But it is, that's a whole different story. But I'm supposed to be at Bimia, and now I am here. And you have a very strange uh, shadow road here. It sounds like a noble. Um, which the other I'm used to, the ones that sound like timpani. And also like a cello sometimes. But it is a little bit strange. I just keep going on. Kari just very patiently, <laughs> it, it, but It looks like he is not anywhere yeah. near stopping. You have many words. You know, yes, I do. But it is because I'm thinking, because I do not think I want to stay here very long. Um, you, uh, and he sort of looks at her and brings his glasses down and sees the horns and looks like that. You are a shadow fae, yes? You are from here. I sheathe my sword, uh, coming to the assumption that this creature is no threat to me. Yes, I am native yeah, to this doesn't realm. Doesn't seem like it. No, he's he's just a little cutie. Um, Although Kari, now that you're up close, you take a look at that uh, that hide he's wearing. What kind of hide is it, by the way? What what creature? Did you remember? Did you remember uh, I, I I mean I I didn't come up with one specifically from the uh, the manual because being I mean probably something from the Ghost Light Forest, a large probably herbivore buffalo esque. I don't know what that would be out of Midgard or. Uh, you know something, um, but no real, no real buffalo in a forest, right? But, uh, maybe something like a, um, uh, maybe a boar, boar skin. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it, it being big enough to literally go all the way up one side and down the other side of him, it's going to need to be something a fairly big size. So it, it looks like he's wearing, yeah, he's wearing a boar skin, uh, a little different, um, not not quite the same as the the boar you're used to seeing here. It's much brighter, which is a little strange. Uh, it must be a Midgard boar. Um, but you definitely notice the lines drawn all over his map, and you recognize a few of them as marking shadow roads. How did you come across this skill? And I look down and see that she's looking at us. 
Ah, yes. Uh, the uh, That is what I study. It is what I... Um, I apparently, it was something I was born to, to do. Um, if this is, in fact, the Shadow Realm, um, I was wondering... Uh, I, I know a little of things uh, things down here. Um, the, the City of Lanterns? Do you know where that is? Is that somewhere close by? We are relatively <laughs> close. <laughs> you will need a guide. Distance is, distance is always iffy in the Shadow Realm, but this time of year, yeah. Uh, uh, that's yeah, why I just say we're close. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah, yeah, more or less. We Get estimates. Are we can approach that destination. But that would be my best bet, probably, to get away out of here, because the, the Shadow Road, like, the Shadow Road, uh, you know, it goes out of here. Perhaps that is the oboe sound? Is it uh, that? He kind of listens. You were saying I could hear it off in the distance. Is is it that the way, perhaps? Uh, he points roughly towards the City of Lanterns, yes. Yes. You have a very good intuition about you. Well, perhaps uh, you were saying, it, uh, yes, I would probably need a guide if you would be willing to help me. And uh... Oh, I won't take you. Varus will take you. I point down to my, my cat, who I will have come friendly, kind of clumb. Like, look at him do the whole cat, like, jump up thing, wanting to be pet. So a little black cat comes up and, like, starts to claw at your pant leg. And, uh, and his eyes creepily glow with this sort of inner blue cold light i pick him up i figure he probably can fit in my whole hand and just like oh yeah he's very light and uh it looks like when you study the edges of his fur it almost looks like it's made of darkness just sort of woven around him well aren't you just the most extraordinary thing huh all right and uh i think that's probably a good time for us to stop and we will pick up bringing everyone together next time awesome episode one awesome. thank you very Woo! much everyone that was a blast uh so a little bit of a, a you know bouncing around i hope you guys don't mind getting some background no, exposition great. And, and sort of laying that out for everybody and and then so we'll bring it all together and we'll flash back to where you guys are down on the cart cartways so That's awesome. that was awesome thank you no thank you thank you um but did you have to kill his mom? I know no. so many moms. <laughs> did you not read the story? So many moms. I was, I was legit tearing up. <laughs> I was tearing up, and I was like, I wrote this backstory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I hope you don't mind that I I took some liberty with a few of the specific details. No, I love uh, it. To kind of, I thought it was great. Just, you know, yeah. it was great. I loved awesome. it. And holy shit, Midgard. Guys, if you haven't checked out the Midgard campaign setting, the Heroes Handbook, go over to cobaltpress.com, check it out. You can get a PDFs over there as well, as well as these beautiful little uh, hardback uh, books that they've got. And uh, holy shit, will you guys have uh, a good time if you check that out. So strong recommend. So uh, I'll just throw out there too, if anybody watching has any questions about Midgard, uh, my my Twitter handle up there is, is is at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Hit me up. I'm always game to talk D&D. Love to talk Midgard. Uh, yeah. Got any questions? Want to know anything? Want to poke me about what happened in some of the backstories? Uh, I'll, yeah. I'd love to talk about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that was fun. And yeah. Uh, yeah, if you if you missed any of the uh, the episode, it'll be up on YouTube uh, probably even 
48, maybe 24 hours. Uh, and of course, if you didn't know, it's going to be a podcast as well. Um, so there will be a link to the podcast uh, within the next 10 days. Each episode will be up uh, on podcast format. So you can listen back uh, to the show on your favorite bits uh, on your commute to and from work, lunch break, whatever. Uh, so that would be pretty awesome. Uh, if you guys enjoyed tonight's show, be sure to hit the follow button and join us. We're here every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the World Tree Burns. We'd love to see you guys back again next week uh, to continue on our adventure. And uh, another big thank you to Kobo Press for sponsoring the show and uh, letting us play in this awesome, fun world. Um, of course, other thank yous go to Fantasy Grounds along with Wayland Games for also supporting and sponsoring the show. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we went on for about an hour longer than we uh, we initially expected, which is how you can tell that we uh, had a good time playing D anD. d My apologies um, for running over, but it felt like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody was into no, it, so yeah, I'm glad. Good. So we'll we'll try to keep it we'll try to keep it in bounds from now on. But that was that was too good to just leave off. I wanted to hear everyone's backstory. That's what I was like really invested. I was like, let's keep going. I need to hear this. Like Exactly. Yep. People started exactly dying way, and but, I got um, scared. I was like, I don't want to do my backstory anymore. That gives you at least the gist of what everybody's all about and Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you guys some for of us, as well. Go ahead. Then. Yeah. No, no, I was gonna say some of us still have a lot of secrets. Kane, <laughs> because some of us have centuries worth of backstory, but whatever. Imagine yeah. that, Josh. We're gonna get through it next. Can't week. believe it, Josh. With Let me weird put on my shock face. Wow, <laughs> man, this was this was a blast, guys. Uh, so this really is the first. Like I've done one-offs and I've done playtest, but this is the first campaign session of Midgard that I've gotten to run, and I've been so excited to do it. And I love that you guys brought me on to do this. So thank you very very much. I, I love that, like, talking to Dan, like, when we were doing character creation, like, we were just like, I'm going to play this, and Dan's like, I wrote that, I wrote that, <laughs> it's awesome. There is nothing cooler are, than literally having the big, person that wrote head. the book be your DM, like, that's oh, freaking yeah. cool. Geeking out, I'm geeking out hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks for all the subs and the donations as well tonight, you guys have been uh, an awesome in the, uh, the viewing decision as well, it was a lot of fun, so thank you guys for that. And don't worry, I've written down the viewer decision stuff. We're not going to forget it. It's going to happen. There's going to be a, a celestial <laughs> Labradoodle Day puff. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yes, Sips is every Tuesday night after the long march. The full schedule is here. But let's go around the custom crew. Let's wrap this thing up. Uh, let's figure out where we can find you guys online. Did you enjoy yourself as well? So let's start with our illustrious Dungeon Master, Dan. What do you think of tonight's show? And uh, where can we find you online, Dan? Oh man, I, I thought you guys were awesome. I uh, you know I've been more and more excited as we dig into character stuff coming up to this, and you did not disappoint. It's better than I could have hoped, and I love how the backstories uh, laid out, and I love how they're going to weave together next time. I hope that's going to land as well. I cannot wait. I love it. I had a blast. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at dan underscore dylan underscore one. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I'm a moderator on the massive 120,000 member D Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition Facebook group. So if you want to talk D&D, that's a great place to do it. Yeah, I'll be writing more stuff for Cobalt Press. I'll be writing stuff for the Adventurers League. And I even got to contribute to an official WotC product that hasn't been announced yet that I can't talk about. But maybe pay attention to the stream of many eyes. Cool. <laughs> great stuff. Oh. Thank you, Dan. Uh, again, awesome job. Uh, Toad School. 
Same questions. Oh, I had a blast. I mean, just, I, I mean, I was geeking out so much hearing about all the different places that I've been reading about in the world book and things that I have, uh, you know, just all of it. It's way, way, way cool. I am super excited. Uh, you can find me all over social media as Tall Squall. If you go to my uh, Twitter uh, at Tall Squall, you can uh, find links to all the other stuff that I'm in. But absolute blast i cannot wait to play in this world and to play with all of you guys and uh loken man you're killing us you're killing us it was beautiful oh man oh, sorry it was so good. <laughs> it was good oh no it was just great i mean i love it no, it I was mean, good that 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 landed so well <laughs> yeah, awesome awesome work everybody no it was great hearing everyone's backstories uh i was gonna say i think i'm the i think i'm the innocent one of the group imagine that <laughs> Anyway, Who, can't wait. They, let me put on my shocked face. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Great stuff. Thank you, Tool School. Uh, Tia! Hi, uh, I am Laura Lanya, my Tia Zimmer on Twitter. Those are some links. Hopefully they're not broken or misspelled because I have been doing D&D for like nearly 12 hours today and it has been awesome uh, for my own prep for Midgard here. Back to the Long March, back to here again. This is something that I've been looking forward to uh, since I started reading it. I'm kind of set in my ways with D&D and I didn't think that I would ever get pulled into another campaign setting again for a very, very long time. But the lore, oh my god, it's like Dungeons and Drugs is more like it, because that's what Midgard is, is it's a freaking drug. The fact that I got to actually see the Lord, I didn't see the Lord of the Hunt curveball that you threw there, because my backstory didn't initially uh, include that. So actually seeing the god is, is a really, really cool and empowering experience. And playing a character that is not evil and more attuned with nature is definitely new for me. So exploring that with you guys. And again, McLaughlin, happy birthday. And your mom, dude, why? Happy birthday. Oh, Sorry I killed yeah, your birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. That's me. Oh I love you. Amazing. Thank you, too. Uh, and yes, uh, McLaughlin. Hello. My name's McLoken. Uh, you guys can find me uh, on my Twitch channel. Uh, I do a uh, my own D&D show, which is, starts tomorrow, which will be uh, for podcast listeners. That's uh, May 23rd. We're starting season two of Chosen, which is a uh, 5e Final Fantasy hybrid die homebrewed. Uh, so I'm super excited about that one. I'll be giving, uh, beginning at 7 p.m. Central. I'm on a slew of other shows. Uh, if you follow me at Twitter, at McLoken, uh, you guys uh, can totally come uh, uh, check me out. Uh, I tweet about what show I'm going to be on and all that kind of stuff. And I'll be starting a second show of City of Mists on Mondays. Uh, Monday nights with a bunch of fantastic cast there too that I'll, I'll also be running so uh, I like making up stuff on the fly so that's a it's a fantastic time I apologize if I made everyone cry I got teary eyed playing that character because I just pictured a little unknown with big eyes and like tearing up and I was like no my heart's true luckily the, I it is the saddest I, thing dude I, I had I I to channel my sad voice yeah. and the tears oh, thank that you. was doing I, it man oh, yeah. yeah the voice Oh, dude, your voice is so good for it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, it was fantastic. Guys, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, this was, this was fantastic. I love everyone's backstory. Dan, thank you for being a fantastic DM. That was, uh, that was fucking amazing. Thank you very um, much for saying yeah. so. Yeah. 
My pleasure. Yeah, uh, everyone's an amazing character, and I, I can't wait to see where the show goes. So, yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you, Logan. And Josh. You're muted. You're muted. Just like your character. He's just role-playing Kane. <laughs> muted. <Yeah>. Still <laughs> muted. Jerk. Still muted. Still Jerk. muted. Jerk. Jerk. He's doing it on purpose Aww. now. Oh, Aww. you're no, such can we, can we? Can we ad-lib for him? <laughs> My name is just keep talking. Hi, I'm, I'm Josh, and I'm going to betray the party. No one's going to see it coming. Hi there, mates. My name's Josh, and I'm going to betray the party. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do my worst English accent I can possibly manage. Skipped right into Australian, but sure, we'll take it. <laughs> He's Encounter Josh, and you can find him here on Encounter Josh on Twitch. You can also find him Encounter Josh on Twitter. You can find me on Encounter Roleplay doing Encounter Roleplay things. Uh, so yeah, um, but that's all from me. So um, thank you guys for watching. It's been an awesome night, and uh, we'll see you again next week, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday for the World Tree Burns. Until next time. Try not to draw too many net ones. We want to be laughing when you do. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>